Greetings, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. This is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Hard News on Friday night at BBS Radio. We're grateful that you join us here tonight. And so let's just take a few moments to go into our heart space and listen to that calling, uh, calling beat for the, the, uh, the drum. For that calling as we come together. Take a few gentle breaths. Breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth, slowly and gently. Go into your heart space. Let go of that dross of the day. Gather with your guides and guardians, spirit teams, your healing teams, your ancestors, whoever you like to journey with in this Kimi drum. There's a council fire in the center, so let us go to that center. Make a virtual circle around that virtual council fire in that virtual way that we know how to do so well. Coming close. And now let's call in the seven galactic directions in the Mayan tradition. Welcome from the east, the house of light. May wisdom open in the dawn that is upon us, so that we may see all things in clarity. We welcome from the north, the house of light. May wisdom mature among us so that we may see everything from within. And we greet from the West, the House of Transformation. May wisdom be transformed into right action so that we might accomplish what must be done. of eternal sun. May right action give us the harvest so that we might enjoy the fruits of the planetary beings. 
Welcome from above, the house of paradise, where the star people and ancestors gather. May their blessings reach us now. We welcome from below the house of the earth. May the beating of the crystal planet's heart bless us with its harmony so that we might end war. We welcome from the center, the source of the galaxy, which is everywhere it was. May everything be recognized as the light of mutual love. Ayun, Hunaku, even Maya, Imaho. Ayun, Hunaku, even Maya, Imaho. Ayun Hunaku even Maya Ima Ho All hail the harmony of mind and nature in Lakesh Okay So just stay wherever that drumbeat took you. You take a few moments to look at the Mayan calendar for today and the week ahead. We're looking today as a portal day, and it's a seven ebb. So the yellow resonant human is is what we're working with today on this portal day. So it's got that extra dimensionality to it. So very powerful. That resonant tone is inspire, inspiring. It's attunement. It's channel. And uh, the human ed is influence, wisdom, and free will. So the affirmation for today, I channel in order to influence inspiring wisdom. I seal the process of free will with the resonant tone of attunement. I am guided by the power of flowering. So who is that guide? That 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 guiding um cliff is calm the seed. So we're working with that seed guiding that tone seven. So that's flowering. <laughs> and then in the uh First watch, which is the analog, we have the human. I mean, well, no, the human is, is the glyph today. It's the hand, excuse me. So we've got the human hand. And, and uh, our challenge glyph today is the wind. And the uh, occult guide, the fourth watch, is what we're in now, and it's the guide for the day is the moon. 
Maluk. And we're in that um, year of Maluk. So we get to work with that purification method. This sword with brings us. And then moving on to tomorrow, it's Saturday. It's an eight band, the Red Galactic Skywalker. And um, and then on Sunday, well, let's look at the Galactic Skywalker for a minute. The warrior aspect, and it's about striving towards self-illumination. It's about focus and clarity. So let's embrace the gifts of the warrior. <clears throat> I mean, of Ben, the Skywalker, the gifts of strength and that ability to bend directions. And, and it's about surrendering to any any resistance to faith or any belief in aloneness as we embrace these entities on Saturday. And then moving on to Sunday, which is the last day of July and the first day of Lamas. It's that midpoint. It's also called Lunasa. And it's the first harvest festival. We'll talk about that some more tomorrow as I'll be doing the meditation work tomorrow as well. So, um, yeah, so that's on Sunday where we have that high holy holiday going into the 1st of August on Monday. So it's uh, Sunday is a nine each. It's the white solar magician. And so that's a visionary aspect that we're looking at, that illumination for others and clarity of mind and purpose with this energy. As we embrace these gifts of being a shaman and working with that jaguar medicine and working with integrity and working in accordance with divine will. So let's embrace these gifts that each brings us, the magician, as we let go of any control or personal power issues or any manipulation. And then, let's see, that's, that's Monday. So Monday, then, is the 1st of August, and that's what we more traditionally notice is Lamas, that um, midpoint between the summer solstice and the fall equinox. It is the beginning of fall in the Celtic tradition, and it's the first of the harvest festivals. So um, Monday is a 10 men. It's the blue planetary eagle, and it's another visionary aspect. So we get this holiday in, in the visionary realm. That's wonderful. So let's work with our commitment to service with this energy and, and moving consciousness to source and reconnecting with all creation as we do so. So embrace the gifts of independence and the belief in ourselves as we let go of any feelings of despair or dissociation and let go of that illusion of separateness, the evil energy. And then moving on to Tuesday, it's an 11 key. If that's the yellow spectral warrior, and so this key, key warrior energy is about trusting in our journey and bringing awareness of right action. So we embrace the, these gifts from the warrior, the, the, the communication with the divine and the access to cosmic consciousness. 
as we access this warrior, the warrior-ness in ourselves, we let go of any limitations or restrictions or hesitation as we embrace these energies. On Tuesday, and then moving on to Wednesday, it's another portal day in the 12th Kaban, the Red Crystal Earth. And this Kaban energy is a healing aspect, so we are the keeper of the Earth, and we stay aware of Earth energy. We stay tuned in to her and stay grounded and listen. We embrace these gifts of that access to planetary harmony, to being that balancing point. And that gift of intuition, stronger all the time, for sure. So let's let go of any separation, any failure to read the signs, any dissociation. As we embrace these energies on Wednesday, and it's portal day, so let's enter, enter that portal. And then on Thursday, it's the 13X knob, the white cosmic mirror, so we're complete this wave. Um, as we do this, and um, let's see, it's Thursday, the white cosmic mirror is the warrior aspect, and it's about working on our groundedness, and it's about that wise use of honesty and self-understanding. So we embrace these gifts of scrying the unseen with this energy of the mirror, that fluidity, that persistence. As we let go of any illusion of separateness, any fear, or any abandonment issues. So there you go. That's uh, Thursday, and that completes the 13-tone, completes the wave of Kimi, and it is that promise of change. And so Friday, when we come back, it's a one kawak. We begin the wave of kawak, the storm. The blue magnetic storm. And uh, so the guidance for this wave is that is a time of possibility and transformation. And uh, it's the 4th of August, no, 5th of August, so it is Tara's birthday. So we get to celebrate Tara's birthday next Friday when we come back. <laughs> and she embraces a year of one co-op being the blue magnetic storm, watch out. <laughs> so with that little bit of humor, um, that is the update for the week in my calendar. And I'm going to change my hat. And as we are a listener supported radio program, it's all of us that make it happen. Uh, at the radio, we need $300 and and that should make us even, so lots of gratitude for being even to this point <laughs> and having everything paid up. And so that's all we need this week for the radio, 300. Very good. Thank you, Dave. Here's how we do it. We go to bbsradio.com, click on radio station 2. You're looking for the menu of the shows on radio station 2. You're looking for Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. 6 o'clock hour Pacific time for Thursday and Friday and the 1.30 hour on Saturday Pacific time. And so the the shows on 
on Thursday, a night at the round table with the panel. You can click on that icon there. That'll take you directly to our account with CBS Radio and make that donation right there using your bank card. And the same is true with the Friday show, this program, the hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Rama. Click on that icon there. That takes you to our account. The same is true with the Saturday show, the true history of her students there at our Galactic Origins with Tara and Rama. You can click on that icon. That takes you to our account. So there you go. All those. You can, you can actually contribute three times. Click on all the icons. But one of the maps, and we're grateful for everybody participating and making it happen in a good and easy way. Um, we're grateful for all that BBS provides for us, and we're grateful for Tara and Rama and the panel showing up each week and doing their thing. So, so much gratitude. And so we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs, and I want to say congratulations. They got their rent paid. and. Almost all the bills. There's just two left. The two bills remaining are $250 combined. And um, then they also need money for living expenses. And uh, so that is another $300 for that. And, um, yeah, we're grateful for your contributions to Sistar and Rama with what they need, and we're so grateful they got their rent paid on time, and lots of gratitude for that. So thank you for all of you who showed up, made made the rent week happen in a good way. <laughs> so here's how I make a contribution to Tara and Rama. You want to uh, look for the PayPal account, and you do that by going to the web address, rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the home page, you click on that menu grid. As that drops down, you see the donate button near the bottom of that list. That takes you to Rama's PayPal account. <coughs> Where you can make a donation in any amount. And uh, as you have your own PayPal account, you, you, you don't want to take that link. You want to just go to your own pay, pay, PayPal account. And you want to you know, click on send money and you put enter in Rama's email at PayPal for that. So that email is Koran, K O R A N, 9999 at hotmail.com. And that way you don't get, uh, you, you don't have to pay the commercial charges as you would with the, the computer link. So that's how that works. Either way, it's perfect. We're grateful for it each and every one of you and all of your contributions that make it all happen in a good way. So much gratitude. And as you're sending something, please let Rama know in that email for Rama. Uh, to, for that communication is Koran999 at Comcast.net. And then as you need it, the mailing address is Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D. Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280-280, and that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, with the zip code 87567. And again, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567 is the zip code. So 
they have all the information, and I'll give you the uh, web addresses for joining the New Gen Coin and for joining Fremark as you wish to do so. The joining addresses use the HTTPS in front of them. So here it goes HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash www.shopfremark.com forward slash T A R R A M. And you can go there and look around if you like it. You want to order something. If you want to join, that's where you join from. As you set up your own account, you make your order there. That's how that works. And the new gen coin is a fun little thing. And its address for joining, HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash www.newgencoin. And you, G-E-N-C-O-I-N. Dot com forward slash T-A-R-R-A-N or N-A-R-N-O-R for Marshall Norris. Either one is perfect, and uh, enjoy the ride on that one. Uh, <laughs> so much gratitude for all of you for being here, and I want to pass this talking stick. Oh, my gosh. It's got... They're celebrating Lamas already, so everybody brought a loaf of bread. That's the first harvest celebration is the bread one, harvesting the wheat. And so, I don't know, looks like they're going to be making sandwiches, but there's a lot of activity with the elementals on this talking stick, and the sort of truth is there. All the angels and elementals that are are working with the changes are are all about it and hyped up and ready to go and do the work and all those healing rays and it's it's pretty glamorous talking stick. So with all the fairies and feathers and and the little people, the menahunis, the hobbits, the the gnomes and undines and all the other elementals. And I see a unicorn again. And so, and you know dragons are there, and oh my gosh, and here comes a couple of shots. We are in Leo indeed. So greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes his talking stick. Watch out for the shots. Watch out for those shots. Right. I got some really naughtier ones that are doing around. Yeah, watch out for those shots, you naughty ones. Mm-hmm. That's right. Oh, greetings, everyone. Rama, you can share a little bit about today, okay? Okay, I uh, got to. I got a text from Tom and Larry, and they said that this alignment with um, the North Node and um the other part of the astrology is uh bringing in these energies that are shifting all kinds of stuff and they said what's being played out right now on the big screen or little screen is the ending 
of this cycle as the cadre of criminals are lawyering up, so to speak, and I'll just say that you can't get away with insurrection and treason. Not on this planet or any other planet. And it sure ain't just uh, Donald. No, it ain't. The collaborative effort of this is as evil as it comes. Yeah. I mean, I remember way back when, when the different folks in the Orion constellation were squabbling between the Draconians and the other members of the Galactic Federation. And uh, we're not going back there again. And that's a good thing. <laughs> that's a good thing. Even though they're trying with their, you know, simulated reality and bored nanites to try to turn us into drones. It's it's a challenge to stay in the high heart each day with these energies. And um, I had a little experience today where I went up on the side of the mountain almost to the top of the ski valley and I laid down on the ground just to feel the energies in my Shoulders been hurting lately with the energies coming in. And 13 deer showed up and just laid down in a circle around me. I didn't say anything. I just watched the energies and I counted 13 deer. And then I, after about five or ten minutes, I went on my way and I, you know, got up and started um, looking at my phone and they noticed that and they took off because, you know, that kind of technology, they're not really into it. <laughs> and uh, it's just... The energies are very high, and what is being played out right now is the ending of this old timeline. We are saying no to war worldwide, even though they're pushing. And in between Russia and Ukraine, they're going back and forth at it. Even Amy talked about it, how it's Mr. Z who is creating this horror show. Yeah, um, there was a report today on RT, too, that 53 Ukrainian soldiers... POWs. Well, they were prisoners of war, yeah. yeah. And uh, they were in a, one place, and they were killed. I heard different things that it was the detention center. and. Yeah, that's what... That is, but that's and, why the and the reason they were in there, and this is the evil part, is because they started to tell the truth about what's going on. So they 
kill them off because all of them would be squawkers, you might say. So they just put them all there and then they just killed them, bombed them. There, and it's and it was played very clearly out in on RT. They said their own people, their own Ukrainian so, fellow soldiers, killed them. This is just yeah, unspeakable evil. And of course, Zelensky has had this plan all along, and he's been working directly with the deep state over here. Yeah. And this is what's going on all over the place. You know, there's so many things that so many people say. So just put a circle of support and blaze the violet fire around whistleblowers all over the world. Right Right now. now. I can just say, even though it's not being talked about, the, you know, the Nephilim, the fallen angels, the whole story about Enki and Enlil. And what happened in 13,000 years of mind control. And Enki and Enlil knew about the destruction of Maldek. And what happened on Maldek between the two cities, Baldur and Vara, how they went to war against each other. And they conveniently did not tell the people of Mars or Earth about what was coming which was called the flood. And it's a big deal. And it's about how we all had a part to play in it, whether we remember or not, and send more love to all of it. It's all about to come out. Also, I wanted to say, this is on a different subject, but today is Happy New Year. It's the first day of... um, of the new year that begins, uh, the Islamic new year begins oh, yeah. at sundown tonight. That's depends right. on where you are. Inshallah. So happy new year. There is an equal amount of Islamic people as there are Christian people. Don't even think twice about it. And learning the deeper teachings about both of them, and they all come together and say the same thing. But um. Wait, well, 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 wait, 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 just a few, no, it's, uh, that, it's only, we got 20 minutes. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, um, where's my book? I just want to say a few more things that I wrote for notes here. Because Marianne Williamson, what's the, what's the, what's the title of her book? Talk with us, Rama. Recreating the world. Recreating the world, yes. Um, um, in Latvia, they're getting gas from Russia, but not from Gazprom, which is interesting. In the European Union, the energy crisis is accelerating. And um, the crisis is only just beginning because the EU, especially Germany, but in general, the EU gets a lot of their gas from Russia. So they would be required to cooperate with Russia or the entire EU will collapse. If it gets cold, they will be 
without it'll look like what happened two years ago in February in Texas. 85 people froze to death because the grid went down. And their grid will be down, 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 down. And they're saying it out loud already that the EU, the entire EU will freeze. Uh, that's just something to be mindful of. In other words, getting along is necessary at the moment. And, of course, the catch technology would come in really handy about yesterday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Cuba is still on the terrorist list. And I heard a gentleman speaking on RT, and his name was Christopher Black, international lawyer. He said Cuba was never a terrorist place, ever. Mm-mm. You know, it's because they were Russian people, and they were following Russia. But uh, Cuba has created a capitalist-slash-socialist system that works really well. <clears throat> and so, the uh, again, this empire has created a human, humanitarian, cri- humanitarian crisis there because they want to be world domination over everybody. Yeah, the story about the Cold War and... Uh Mutually assured destruction. Uh, Ashtar's here, that's what I got to say. And these people, (coughs) (coughs) people of Cuba have been fighting since the revolution in 1959. That is 60, 62 years, 63 years. Okay, um, Obama listed those uh, state sponsors' terrorism. He lifted it for a very short time, and then Uncle Donnie said, nope, we're going to go back to that other thing. And um, this, this situation which, they, which the empire set up actively allows the United States to declare war. Uh, to declare a state of war with Chris, with Cuba, which they have been doing for 63 years. And patience is a virtue and persistence, everybody. <clears throat> um, Nancy Pelosi is really walking a tight wire. If she goes to Taiwan, you know... Uh, Russia and China are really aligned together, and this power that we call empire is looking at those two countries in the face. That's not a pretty picture. No. And what we don't know, what we keep telling you, is that both President Xi and President Putin, that's the lookalike out there, but Putin is working with the Andromedans. Uh, but President Xi's working with the Pleiadians. Yes. And have no, not, not one single doubt that the Galactics are working very directly right now. To, that's a form of intervention that, you know, we may not be aware of, but it's going on. And um, 
this gentleman said something, this Christopher Black, he said the EU has been cutting its own throat by its own policies. And the United States is doing exactly the same thing. Because uh, I also heard also that the Latin American countries, south of the border, Mexico, Central America, South America, they do not trust the United States, and they've already said we're not interested. You know, they just don't. They don't pay one single bit of attention. In other words, they are the people are doing things with each other. They're they're not subject to this thing. Okay, so let's play our sister. I just want to say, everybody, that this is the moment. Oh, one more thing. The people in Canada that have been, you know, doing things with his royal highness, the poop, <laughs> the Pope, um, they have had posters up, and there have been large crowds, and they say, the posters say, rescind the doctrine of discovery. Yeah. The Doctrine of Discovery says that if you don't do exactly what we say, you are not even human. It actually says it in the Doctrine. And we have full carte blanche to kill you. So mm. let's put all of this stuff in the circle of support. And as we play what Miriam has to say, let's, let's lift it all up and we can clear it. We can literally clear it. Okay, here we go. Hey, everybody. I am speaking to you from Melbourne, Australia. I have been in England and in Australia over the last week and a half, talking to thousands of people, having a very interesting time in these quite glorious countries. And I want to share with you what I've been talking to people about Um it's so interesting, isn't it? Because there are changes on this earth right now that are coming up from the bottom of things. It doesn't have to do with any one particular country or any one particular ethnicity or culture. There's a sense just among us as human beings that some new era has got to now unfold. We are living at a period of historic phase transition. And during these changes from one historical era to another, Turmoil is inevitable. There's always drama and tumult at such times of change. We're afraid in many ways, I think, because the changes that are happening right now, all of us wonder what is going to happen. Are we still going to even have an environment that is habitable? Are we still going to have democracies? Are we going to be able to face the challenges of the fact that basically humanity lives in such maladaptive ways you know when you and i were children we learned in school about evolution and how if a species behaves in ways that are maladaptive for its survival then something has to change either there will be an evolutionary shift uh, a mutation and things will evolve in a different direction or the species could actually go extinct well, what's happening now, of course, is that humanity is behaving in ways that are maladaptive for our survival. Collectively, we are behaving in ways that do not speak of 
a real intention to survive and thrive over the next, let's say, 100 years. I think people are registering this. I don't think the problem is that people don't get this. But I think that there's a lot of despair in the air, a lot of cynicism, a lot of hopelessness and a sense that we can't make it right. I think that that cynicism, which I always say is just an excuse for not helping. I think that cynicism and that fear, you know, it's like uh, Franklin Roosevelt said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I think the cynicism and the fear and the despair is something that we need to look at. You know, in AA, they talk about how you can get to a point where you're just sick and tired or being sick and tired. It's time to get into the solution. What I feel in talking to people, once again, not only in the United States, also in England and in Australia, is that there is this yearning to get into the solution. We are living at a time of simultaneous two phenomena. One is a world that's just crumbling and seems to be falling apart, but another is a world that is struggling to be born. It's our evolutionary challenge. It's the karma of this lifetime, you might say, that we show up as midwives, doulas, yes, to help that which needs to die fall away, and that which needs to be born is struggling to be born. How can each of us in our own lives help make that happen? I think that that is a common mission of humanity at this time. Not all of us just going around doing our own thing, but all of us bound by a sense that no matter what we're doing, we're doing it for a common purpose. And that is to regreen our societies, to regenerate our cultures. It is time for us to initiate a season of repair. That's the phrase that keeps coming up for me, new beginnings, a season of repair. It's time for us to You know, Thomas Paine, he said, we have it in our power to start the world over again. And that's what you and I have to do. We are 20, we are living in the 21st century. You know, when I talk to these younger people, like at colleges and so forth, I'm reminded they're not even 20th century people. Many of them weren't born in the 20th century, or if they were born in the 20th century, just like they were little children. The 21st century mindset is different than the 20th century, just like the 20th century mindset was different from the 19th. The 20th century mindset was very mechanistic, Newtonian physics. The world is a big machine. If you want to change the world, you just tweak pieces of the machine. But there's a British physicist named James Jeans, and he said that it turns out the world is not a big machine. It's one big thought. Now, that's 21st century thinking for you. The wealth of the world was material wealth in the 20th century. The wealth of the world today is the wealth of consciousness. Everything's holistic. Everything's body, mind, and spirit. Everything's the brain and the heart. We are bringing to bear upon our our challenges. We are coming up with new problem-solving options, new problem-solving modalities, a whole person perspective a whole person perspective which makes us eschew and avoid and reject old ideas and old ways of doing things that obviously do not support the sustainability of life on earth. Whether it's an economic system that's soulless and amoral, it has to do with just the creation of wealth for a tiny group of people at the expense of the majority of people. Whether it has to do with an economic system that extracts uh, fossil fuels from the planet at the expense of long-term survival and habitability of the planet, whether it has to do with 
ways of dealing among nations that are increasingly irresponsible given the plethora of nuclear bombs on the planet. There is a sense that we have to come up with a new way of looking at things in order to come up with a new way of doing things. It has been particularly inspiring to me, uh, being in other countries, being in England, being in Australia, and hearing the same kinds of conversations that we're having back in the United States among so many people that I know. Everybody asking ourselves, how can we give birth to something new? So whatever it is that you're doing in your own life, you know how it is, what we say here all the time. It's like the Dalai Lama saying that in order to save the world, we must have a plan, but no plan will work unless we meditate. Meditate, meditate, meditate. When we meditate in the morning, we prepare our nervous system. You might meditate, you might pray, you might have a mindfulness practice, but you want to remember Blaise Pascal, the the French philosopher centuries ago, who said, every problem in the world derives from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. When you wake up in the morning, first you, you first download the consciousness that is going to dominate your day. If the first thing you do is go to the computer and to Twitter and to Instagram and your emails and all of that, then you're just downloading the stress of the day. Mm-hmm. But if you do whatever your spiritual practice is, whatever your mindfulness practice, whatever your centering practice is, do that. In the Course in Miracles, it says five minutes of that in the morning is enough to guarantee that that spirit of peace will be in charge of your thought forms throughout the day. There's so much chaos that is assaulting all of us all the time. And we have to make a choice. Am I going to be at the effect of that chaos or am I myself going to be a transformer of that chaos? Don't saunter into the chaos and expect to find inner peace. Find your inner peace. Then when you go out into the day, including the chaos of the modern world, you yourself will be someone who not only is able to retain your peace, but you yourself become a harmonizing agent wherever you go. That is how we're going to repair the world. One interaction at a time, one project at a time, one day at a time. The world will not be made different until and unless you and I are made different. And to me, that's the name of the game in the 21st century, internal change and external change, that holistic model of transformation. Martin Luther King said we must have quantitative changes in our circumstances and also qualitative changes in our souls. So I hope that you are having a beautiful day. I hope that you will remember to send your love to whoever you happen to see today. Remember, ground yourself in the morning. You know what we say here all the time. Pray in the morning, meditate in the morning, then kick ass in the afternoon. Wherever you go, send your love before you. People won't know why it feels better to be around you. They just will. Because so much is happening on invisible subconscious planes. Just send some love to wherever you happen to go. Before the meeting, before the project, before you do anything. It will make more of a difference than you might think. And even if you're laughing and going, oh, I I don't think it's that simple. Why don't you just try it out? You'll be surprised. So let's forgive who we can, including ourselves. Let's judge less today. Let's remember that every time we have an attack thought towards anyone, it's like a sword that's falling on their head, but actually it's falling on our own. 
Let's try to be a little more generous today, a little less self-centered, a little less grabby, a little less all about me. And slowly but surely, we will recreate our own personalities. And together, we will recreate the world. Have a beautiful day. Thanks so much. Thank you, Marianne. Oh, oh, let's just keep that together in our beings here. And we'll take this uh, moment now to go to the conference call. Rama, would you like to give the number? Uh, 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353-863-POUND. Okay. And so we'll be spending an hour together there. And then we'll be right back here at BBS Radio. Station 2. The best radio there is. Across the planet, across the stars, right here, right now. See you on the conference and then back here at this qualitative, quantitative, transformative BBS radio show coming up in an hour. Sat now, namaste. Be the one you want to be in the world. Aloha.
Hi, Precious Heart. Thank you for joining us for our weekly vlog. Last week, the Company of Heaven shared with us some background about the young people who will assist awakening humanity to co-create the life-transforming, generational changing of the guard. This is an essential facet of Mother Earth's ascension process, and it has been unfolding step by step for decades. Today, I will share with you the information the Company of Heaven has given to Era of Peace regarding this global event and how you can weave your magnificent light into this divine mission. I am delighted to say that at long last, we are being called to once again by our Father, Mother, God, and the Company of Heaven to gather physically in order to fulfill the next critically important facet of the divine plan. The vehicle that will be used is the annual World Congress on Illumination. The first World Congress on Illumination was held during Harmonic Convergence in 1987. Every year since that auspicious event, the Company of Heaven has utilized the annual World Congress on Illumination to guide us through various facets of the divine plan intended to fulfill the greatest need of the hour for Mother Earth and all life evolving upon her. Due to the pandemic and what the Company of Heaven referred to as a planetary pause, the last two years, the 34th and 35th annual World Congress on Illumination were held as online virtual events. We definitely missed being able to connect physically with lightworkers from all over the world. However, through our virtual event, hundreds of thousands of people who have not been able to physically attend the World Congress on Illumination in the past were able to participate. Our Father, Mother, God, and the Company of Heaven have assured us that when lightworkers are able to gather physically in order to fulfill a particular facet of the divine plan, our power and effectiveness is exponentially intensified. Consequently, they encourage us to meet physically whenever possible, which we will. Now, however, since we have experienced what it is like when hundreds of thousands of people are able to consciously join with us energetically through a virtual event, we do not want to miss providing that opportunity as well. For the 36th Annual World Congress on Illumination, we will co-create a hybrid event with the guidance of the Company of Heaven. Beginning each day of the Physical World Congress, we will have an activity of light through which the Company of Heaven will reveal the greatest need of the hour and what the next step of our divine mission for that day will be. Day by day, as we accomplish each step of the unfolding divine plan, the Company of Heaven will reveal to us the next opportunity. During the 36th World Congress on Illumination, for the very first time, 
the one hour activity of light in the morning will also be available as an online virtual event. With the support of light workers, this daily activity of light will be offered free of charge for everyone around the world who wants to weave their magnificent light into this critically important facet of our ascension process. The annual World Congress on Illumination is truly a global heart and mind expanding event for everyone who has the heart call to participate. So listen to your heart and your I am presence will guide you unerringly to your part of this critical facet of the divine plan. Every light worker will be in their right and perfect place. No facet of the divine plan is any more important than another. What is important is that we respond to whatever our I am presence is guiding us to do. We must trust and know that if we are being guided to be physically present within the portal of light in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where the 36th World Congress will be held, then our I am presence and the company of heaven will assist us in paving the way. This is true whether we need assistance with time, energy, or money to accomplish this facet of our divine mission. Our Father, Mother, God, and the beings of light in the realms of illumined truth are sending forth a clarion call to all embodied light workers. Together, we will unify our heart flames and form a mighty transformer that will allow the I am presence of every person on earth to receive the intensified frequencies of light that will exponentially accelerate our ascension process on behalf of humanity, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth. Through the unified efforts of heaven and earth, we will co-create the divine matrix that will allow awakened humanity to begin tangibly manifesting the sacred space for a generational changing of the guard. This generational shift will involve the billions of souls who have embodied on earth since harmonic convergence in August of 1987. These precious ones include the incoming babies, the children who are already here, and the teenagers and young people known as Generation Z and the Millennials. These sons and daughters of God have incarnated in every country and in every condition and situation existing in the world. Millions of them are well aware of the urgent need of the hour, and they are standing in readiness to assume their places as transformational leaders. 
there are millions of other young people who are in the process of awakening and will soon take their place in the unfolding divine plan. Those of us who embodied on earth to pave the way for this generational changing of the guard are now being called to co-create the divine matrix that will assist these young people to fulfill their monumental mission of physically co-creating the heart-based patterns of perfection for the new earth. Each and every one of these precious souls has been uniquely prepared to become a steward of Mother Earth as she heals and is transfigured into the perfection of the new Earth. This is true whether or not they are aware of this just yet on a conscious level. Once the divine matrix is successfully co-created, these young people will begin coming to the fore all over the world, and they will bring with them innovative ideas and heart-based solutions as they replace the old guard and the obsolete paradigms of separation and duality that have now been dismantled. They will begin to assume leadership for all of the various social structures existing on Earth, and they will develop new heart-based social structures that will improve the quality of life for all of humanity, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth. If you have the heart call to be physically present at the 36th World Congress on Illumination, know that when you enter the sacred portal of light in Santa Fe, New Mexico, you will experience the awesome power and divine love that has drawn our ancestors to this sacred site for millennia. As this knowing awakens within your heart flame, you will be blessed with the familiar feeling of coming home. Our divine mission will be accomplished through myriad activities of light. We will be joined at inner levels by our Father, Mother God, and the solar logos from suns beyond suns. The entire company of heaven and the I am presence of every person on earth will join us in this service to the light as well. We will also experience the tangible presence of the divinely intelligent beings known as the mighty Elohim, the directors of the elements and the legions of angels throughout infinity. In other words, the entire universe is supporting us in this critical facet of the unfolding divine plan involving Mother Earth and all life evolving upon her. The 36th Annual World Congress on Illumination 
will take place October 15th through the 20th, 2022 in Santa Fe, New Mexico. The venue will be the beautiful El Dorado Hotel and Spa. All of the information you will need to participate in this unprecedented opportunity is available on our website, eraofpeace.org. That is true whether you are planning to attend this event physically or through our online virtual event. The company of heaven said this generational changing of the guard will affect every part of life belonging to or serving Mother Earth in the most positive and life-transforming way. So pay attention and listen to the intuitive inner guidance of your I Am Presence as you respond to this clarion call from on high. Your light is needed now. God bless you. I look forward to being with you next week. Greetings, dear ones. I'm crying of magnetic service. I've said this so many times, I know where I am. There's no magic or mystery in who sits in front of me. It is the precursor to the compassion choir. Not all of you have yet arrived. But the ones who are here are the ones who should hear this. And so I can tell you, dear ones, as I have so many times that I know who is here, that I know about your lives and what has brought you here. But it wouldn't be good enough. Because it has to extend thousands of years before this day to the lives you have lived and the things you have discovered that brought the wisdom to light of an old soul who would go through this journey. I know where I am. You're wearing a badge and it says Lemurian to me. But in English it says compassion choir. And you take a break, you stand in line with others, and they look at you and they say, What is a compassion choir? What do you say? Most of you make up something. <laughs> you can't explain it. And if you did, what would they do? It'd look at you strange. That's the way it looks to most. 
But the old soul in you, the Lemurian in you, doesn't just enjoy this day. That part of you resounds with what you're doing, saying, this is why I was born. So I could do this. And you'd be right. It's the awakening of what I'm going to call the templates of the future. Who in this room has been talking templates for years? And that's the teacher, Peggy, you see. She knows about templates, but I want to talk about other templates as well. What is a template to you? It has many meanings, but it it is a pattern, is it not, of something that you would like to repeat. In our case, a template is a purity that cannot be changed. The good doctor mentioned the seed biology that you have a million years It's a little more than that. Not much, but a little more. Measured in revolutions and part revolutions around the galaxy of the constellation of the Seventh Sister. How many times around in the middle? And since all the stars go at the same speed around the middle, that particular timing you can use in a galactic way no matter who you talk to. Where you go in partial revs. And I tell you that because there'll come a day when you'll measure how long you've had a graduate enlightened status in revs around the middle. They had to put templates here. There had to be templates. Templates of their society. Templates of purity of the creator, which they knew about. And they are in many forms. And we have talked about ascended land. The template of Gaia itself is here on ascended land. It can't be touched. It is protected. And we have even given you some of those ascended areas and you can feel them where you go. It's a template of purity. Because you're going to need that. You're going to need that to look at and copy and emulate for what you're going to do next. If you've got a society that's a million years beyond you, not just technically, we're talking about consciously. You've got some work to do. But I want to tell you, this is this is the beginning of it. There are those who would say that human evolution works in stair steps. It doesn't. How many of your parents were involved in World War Two? And how long ago was that when you were still warring with each other and building the best weapon you could to kill the most people? How many years ago? It was yesterday. Mm-hmm. That was like a, a hundred thousand years 
of evolution of humanity. It didn't get any better. Just because you had more people and higher technology, the consciousness didn't shift, if you noticed. So there's nothing guaranteed with time. What shifted, and right on schedule, by the way, was the consciousness of the old soul. Turning on a light that brought me to this planet. I've always been here. But it brought me here to give you messages 23 years ago because you were starting to turn the key in the lock even then. And human nature started to evolve. And the 11-11 was the point of demarcation. The 87. Harmonic convergence, you can point to that and historians will point to that and say, this is when it began. So that by the time you reached the middle or measured middle of the precession of the equinoxes, you'd be ready. That's why I'm here. That's why Yahi was born. That's why you sit in the chairs. All ages sit here. For this time. So humans didn't simply evolve to this place, hardly. Intent, compassionate action, all the things we're talking about coming together in a confluence of energy that started to make the difference. And that's what's happening. And the templates are starting to be seen. There's templates in the crystalline grid. There's templates in the Gaia grid. There's templates in the magnetic grid. There are templates, are you ready, in your DNA. There is a pure Lemurian Pleiadian template in each one of you. And it sings through the pineal. It sings through the pineal. How many of you are aware that as you sing the tones, you're feeling something in you? You're not singing them to the earth. You're not singing them to the Pleiadians. You're claiming the template in you. And that's the most important template on the planet. And it hasn't been hidden. Dear ones, it's been there all along. And it's difficult for us to describe to you a quantum DNA when all you see is that which is linear. But it had to be there. But there's more. And I will reveal to you for the first time today, because you deserve it, and because you're, you're in, a, in a node that sings it, I want to tell you, that there are other pure templates and other pure templates that are residing on this planet. And those templates are going to be used, and I'm not going to tell you how, because you wouldn't believe it. And they are there residing outside of humanity, protected. There are templates of Gaia, templates of humanism, templates of invention and creation, and they're swimming around in the ocean as whales. And we told you that this would be important. 
The consciousness of those animals don't know this. So you can't look a whale in the eye and say, I know your secret. <laughs> but they're here for the duration. You realize that they're protected. They're like the ascended lamb. They are a protected species on this planet. If you want to say there was a 13th time capsule, it would be them. You get the 13, don't you? <laughs> if you didn't, it was just explained a moment ago. And there they are. They're pure Leadian energy. There are templates there that will be retrieved when they're needed. Inventions that will be retrieved when they're needed. They swim the oceans. They travel further than any other animal on the planet travels on a regular basis. They cover the globe. Now you know why. And now you know who they are and what they're for. They represent all of the purity of humanity to come. A humanity that has free choice. But look at the choices in this room to find the template. So as I close, I will say this. You're going to be planting seeds through the tones in these next days. I want you to think inward to the time capsule in your DNA that's going to open and give you longer life. On the stage, already been mentioned, there is a template for health that works at 80 to 90% and keeps you from aging. There's a template for consciousness that brings out a new kind of human survival called compassionate action. That changes relationships between all of the players on the planet that would normally create drama. Major religions, business. You wouldn't believe how they can change and it's not that they will change themselves as much as they will change the relationships between them. Putting together instead of separating is the template for the future. And it's inside you. And the more you desire it and want to find it, the closer it comes to your reality. There are some of you who will lay on your deathbed someday and wonder if you failed. You'll think to yourself, I'm not really sure I extended my life that long, but I sang the tones. Now, I want to tell you something that you're not considering. These things that are dynamically, akashically inherited <laughs> that are going to pass on to not only you, but to others in lives to come 
are going to resound with what you do here today in your body. Did you get that? In other words, you're opening the template for your next life. And when you come in again, that Akashic inheritance and remembering will see the template first that you created this weekend. You're creating your future, not just this one. Because old soul, you're coming back. You'll always come back. You're not going to miss the finale. The more of you make this decision, the greater the light will be on the planet. And you will know I'm right in time. The words that I speak this day will not disappear. They will be held as truth. and Someday they will be put forward as their own template. When historians take a look at the spiritual history of the planet and say, it was here before you all the time. You are the pioneers of the pineal. The pioneers of the future. And you are making a difference. I want you to ponder that. Ponder that. And then if you dare, before you go to sleep, I want to get yourself a 20-second hug. (laughs) Well done. And so it is. Greetings, dear ones. I'm Cryon of Magnetic Service. The indigenous grandfathers are here. Many of you felt them in the room. The indigenous grandfathers will always be. Wherever you do this. For this is their prophecy. And as far back as you wish to go on the planet, north and south, This is their prophecy. That there would come a day when indigenous and non-indigenous would gather together and honor each other. Through the earth. This is an anointed place. This day it is sacred land. And I want to say something to you. In all love and compassion this day, if you've come to have a good time, you can leave now. And the empty seat will be withdrawn. And it will be closed in by those who recognize the sacredness of this day. Of this day. I'll give you messages in four pieces today about what you're doing, the history of it, a little bit about Yahi, always. I'll tell you about your future choirs. I'll even link up a node and a no for you. But for now, let us set the energy of this place and call it what it is. 
for the few hours that you're here. Turn your consciousness upon that which you have learned. Treat this as sacred ceremony, for it is. Treat this as something that is impactful to the planet, because it is. Honor the indigenous who walked the dirt before the cement was laid down in this place and see them as family. For they've expected you, dear ones. And here you are, right on time. Let the prophecy be fulfilled this day. Let it begin. And so the winds of change are upon us. They're upon all of us. Even that which you would call creative source, especially that which you would call creative source. If you ever thought you were alone on this planet and what you were doing here was isolated, think again. Well, the things that you do today are an exposure of greater things for the galaxy. For the neighborhood, they know what you're doing here. I wish to speak of history. I wish to speak of the history of the ancients. I wish to speak of the history of the tones. Let us start with a phrase that you may have heard. That history will drive the future. And if you speak to a modern sociologist, a modern anthropologist, this is a cynical statement. For what they see is history tending to repeat itself, as though humanity would never learn from the mistakes they made. And it would seem that they are correct. For in the last few thousand years, there has not been much evidence of progress. As I mentioned before, the sticks that you hit each other just got bigger. That's the only change. Survival was still survival. And so it would appear that that statement is correct. That the history of the planet will repeat itself and drive you into the future without a great deal of evolution of consciousness. Now let us go back even further in time, however, and look at how the indigenous looked at it. Every single indigenous culture on this planet starts their ceremonies honoring the ancients their own ancestors, for there is a recognition that the template of wisdom lays there. And so they ask the past for help with their future, but it is not a cynical look. Instead, it is a beautiful look that the future could be developed by the wisdom of the original grandfathers and the ancients as far back as they could look. Acknowledging the wisdom of the past. 
Now let us turn another page and look at this in a quantum way. A quantum way. Outside of three dimensions, climbing into the esoteric box that you have chosen for today. What is your past, human being? Your quantum past. And now I ask you to look at the template that has been placed here by the Pleiadians. That is in your DNA. Those are the ancients for you. And so indeed, history may drive the future. The history of the Pleiades. A graduate planet. The real ancients. The ones you carry right now in your DNA. The ones who have set the sacredness of this space. And so the indigenous had it correct. Except when you now apply the quantum aspect, you go further back than this planet. You're looking at the history of a graduate, divine, aware culture. And that is the door that you are opening. A few years ago, Yai, who you call Dr. Todd, started making the tones, and he did not know why. When they started to become structured, we started to give him instructions on what he was doing and why he was remembering. He was remembering the divine tones of a quantum history. And it started with remembering the tones out of Lemuria. And this day, you have an example of his now remembering in real time the past from the Pleiadians, delivered to him as he needs it, not from something that he had in his Akash. Now, for some of you, this is difficult to conceive of. But this is what is happening this day. Last year, you put together what we would call the Lemurian Choir. And this was the opening statement, the key in the lock, as I told you then, an enablement of the time capsules of the planet, an enablement. The key had been turned, the lock was disengaged. The lock could only be disengaged with a planet that saw this that the history that they were looking at to propel them into the future would not be their history, but the seed biology history, the Pleiadian history. That it was possible for humanity to raise its consciousness and you turn the key. And the galaxy knew it and the neighborhood knew it. And at some level, dear one, every human on the planet knew it at some level. That was the enablement. And there were those who would say, we're done. We have done our job. We have enabled. I want to give you an example of what that's like. That would be like a pioneer finding gold, panning it and seeing it glisten in the water, realizing he had discovered the mother load 
and then walking away and saying, that's nice. <laughs> Without finding the goal. There is the human attribute of the now in modern society that sees an event and says, that's all. Let me do something more exciting. <laughs> Those of you who are here, I want to tell you, it doesn't get more exciting than this. Every single time you put these tones together and do this, there is elevated purpose. It is true that you turned the key. You discovered where the gold might be. But now, you get to use it. And using it is your destiny. And using it comes right from the creative source. A month ago, at Lake Titicaca, the prophecy was fulfilled. The shaman from the north meet the shaman from the south. And the time capsules collectively were open. You turned the key last December. A month ago, you might say that you then opened the door. And today, you're walking through it. It doesn't get more exciting, or does it? And I'm going to give you some information in these next sections about the future choirs, about what you might be doing, about perhaps what their names should be, and even a little more about Yai. But this is the history, and the history will drive the future. A future that sees humanity different than any sociologist could ever conceive who is alive today. That is our prophecy. And finally, I want you to see where you sit. For the last time you gathered in a choir, the indigenous were the Lemurian. They represented the seed biology. Today you sit in a place where the indigenous were the prophets of the earth. No other group but the Maya had the time fractals figured out so that they could tell you when the end of a long count occurred and give you the prophecy of what you're standing here today doing when you sing the tones. That was their prophecy, the beginning of a new calendar. With human nature starting to change, with potential starting to elevate. And finally, finally, the ancients would come forward and their consciousness would be revealed. And they're here today, watching you. Some of you are them. We've given you explanations of the nodes and the nulls of the planet. New information that has only occurred in the last year. Information that could not be given because you had not reached this point where these time capsules would be needed. Nodes and nulls are confusing to humanity.
They're not a three-dimensional concept. But we're going to give you something that will help you to understand a little more why things come in pairs. Even three-dimensional physics comes in pairs. You will always present a choir in a node, and there's a reason. The node is an overlapping of both physical and esoteric grids, multidimensionally creating a situation where you feel good. <laughs> Human beings tend to feel better in places where negativity is being removed rather than in places where positive things are being pushed at you. Did you know that? Yeah. Human beings love to cleanse. You do it all the time. Every opportunity for a cleansing, you're there. If you want something removed that doesn't suit you, you're there. And this is why a node makes you feel so good. For it seems to be the cosmic vacuum cleaner for the crystalline grid, realigning it, recalibrating it, and taking away the things that no longer serve you. Creating a space where you can put into it the things that you want. There's a node and a null, and there must be, there are 12 pairs. When you speak to one, you speak to both because they're quantumly alive. You might even say they're entangled. There is no reason for you to visit a null when you've already visited the node because you speak to both of them. Isn't it interesting? The push and pull energy that we have spoken of, even at the center of your galaxy, even the creative source itself is a pair. So let us put this in a way that you can further understand. Dear ones, if you're going to populate another world, would you send one human? <laughs> No, you said two. <laughs> and the energies of them are masculine and feminine when you look at humanity in three dimensions. And the beauty of them coming together in a way with love creates that which will begat other human beings. It is a beautiful process. It is an energy that comes together. It is a node and a null. And they are equal. And they are beautiful. And the result is creation. Let me tell you some things about Yahi. As the priest that he was in Lemuria, he had high science. He had it from the Pleiadians. And he was selected to have it, and he lived a very long life. Lemurians procreated. That's what they were doing to bring in the souls, to create an akash, a template. They would be beautiful. 
Yeah, he had many children, as many of them did. He lived a very long time. Some of his children actually became the Akashic templates of the ancients. And I know that he suspected that. But in today's life, as Dr. Todd, there are no children. And yet there are. For he has been responsible for bringing you the push-pull energy that will create new consciousness on the planet. You might say, because of that, that Dr. Todd is always quantumly pregnant. (laughs) I'm not sure he wanted to hear that. But does it not then show you that there is a balanced male and female in the man? The gentleness that some of you have seen, the beauty of mastery that some of you have seen. I would like to recall with you his history on the planet, for it didn't start with the esoterics. It started with a vision. And in this vision, he was taken on purpose into that which was the DNA molecule itself, and he got to look around. We even called him the twist master, for he got to see how it was put together. And although this particular knowledge did not then implement into his science, it gave him the vision of what was needed next. It is Dr. Todd who has put together the first quantum energy on the planet and been able to facilitate it, duplicate it, and use it. Long before he was doing these tones, he had discovered something that I will call benevolent physics. And what he found in this quantumness as he remembered it as a Pleiadian, was that every single thing he did with this invention was benevolent. That is out of the odds of scientific discovery. For usually when you work a puzzle in science, in chemistry, you always have experiments, some work, some do not. Everything he touched with this invention was benevolent. Some of you know of the latest and the stem cells that are guided to the places they should go. How do they know where to go? What is the template that could be used? I want to tell you what the template is. It's Gaif. This is high science given to you by the Pleiadians with physics that knows where to go to heal a human being. And as I stand here saying these things and these words perhaps would be echoed around the planet someday and seen, some would be laughed at and other scientists will say, we're seeing this too. Can you imagine discovering elements of physics that know who you are and only do benevolent things in your body. 
And the reason I bring it up is because the tones you are singing are benevolent pairs that are co-creating a birth of a new consciousness on the planet. One that is balanced with male and female. One that is not in survival mode. One that has compassion first. It will create a new kind of thinking. You're planting the seeds. It's not going to be in your news tomorrow. Dear ones, you know that. It may even take a generation or two for you to start seeing it completely where, where one generation must die out and another come back with a new crystalline grid on its feet. But you are helping the planet birth. That's why the tones are sung together. That's why they have to come together in a certain way in order to birth this new child on the planet, which is new consciousness, a new human being. And it's so far removed from your logic at the moment. But you can feel it, can you not? And you know you're doing something important, can you not? And you know the ancients are smiling on all the planets of free choice. And that is the story of what is going on this day in this place. And after the break, the next installment, I'll tell you about the choirs that you're going to sing in soon. And so it continues. And you might ask, what is the future of the choir? Yahi has not been given instructions specifically on how many choirs, when to do them, or how long it's supposed to last. So I'll let him know now. <laughs> this is not a linear process. It is not necessary to go to every single node on the planet and assemble a choir there. Isn't that good news? <laughs> there is a period of time for the singing of the tones and the assemblies of the choir, and it's through 2016. This is the completion year, this group of years, the beginning of the 18 years past the precession of the Equinox's center is the time for this. And this will coincide, Yah-E, with your schedule. And it will make sense to you to put the nodes together and perhaps other choirs in non-nodal areas to accomplish certain kinds of energies yet to come. But let us speak of the ones that are scheduled. And they appear right now on a three-dimensional schedule of time. And let us speak about what they will be and let us name them. Now, Yahi, in your mind, you've, ever, you've already named them, but you never ask. 
so we're going to rename them. <laughs> Not everything is yours to accomplish. Almost. Let us discuss the attributes of what is to come in the next two years. And look at the attributes that perhaps you have not yet discussed or thought of as you scheduled the choirs. Some of this you have thought of, Yahi, and some you have not. The next two no's that you will sing at that are scheduled are both extremely active places for Pleiadian creation. In fact, you might even say they are the most active. What I mean by that is that Pleiadian energy is still there. It is still there felt by humans who have no idea what they're feeling. They are both sacred land. They are both protected. So let us discuss the first that you know about, and this will be next year. It's the year of the seven. Seven, in absolute classic numerological terms, that being from the Tibetan source, not esoteric, but classic, would be divinity. And so you might then wrap around the divine greeting to the Pleiadians in the mountain called Shasta. And the choir that is assembled there in a few months is going to be one that is not about creating a birth of an energy on the planet as much as it is an assembly of celebration. Greeting those in the mountain that you've known have always been there. The city that is Telos, that those in the past dedicated their lives to seeing the city in the mountain, the metaphor of the creative source which lives there even today, will be celebrated by the choir that will go there. Is it not interesting to you that this node has no resorts around it? Not really, not like here. There has not been an attraction that would create something that would be inappropriate around the mountain. That it is pristine. It is village-like. And that is where you will go next in the year of the seven, the divine year. And you may wish to then create and name this the divine choir. The divine greeting choir, whatever in the scope of those things, because that is what you're going to do. You just sang a tone about the seeds of creation. Sing it again there. In fact, you're going to sing it in 2015 as well. So that is the story of Shasta alive with energy of the Pleiadian source, so close to the surface is it that those who are not interested in esoterics can climb that mountain 
and feel them. Perhaps even see the lights that are there at dusk and at night where there should be no lights. The mountain has a lineage and the lineage is that of the creative source. Go and celebrate them and greet them with the choir. The year after that, there are two choirs scheduled, one in a node and one not. And so I will discuss with you perhaps the names of those and the energies around them. You have the tones already, Yai, and those you think you need will be delivered to you in real time, just like they were for this one. The choir next year is about celebration. The choir in 2015, the year of the eight, is also going to be at an extremely active Pleiadian site in the middle of the continent of Australia, in Uluru. Now the Aborigines have something that most people do not know. If you've studied their culture, they claim the creation source is the Seven Sisters. This is their tradition, and so they are claiming those from the stars came and they landed first at Ayers Rock. And Uluru was the point of creation for them. There are many points of creation around the planet. There are some very ancient ones, and this is one of the most ancient. Lemuria has an entirely different attribute as being the first civilization that was sequestered by being an island to have Pleiadian energy and last as long as it did. But Uluru may have the original seeds of the Pleiadians still there. If you ask the indigenous in Australia, who are now part of the planning of this area and ownership of this area, they will say, that the ones whose names you cannot pronounce are still there and they will not allow a human being to go there except a shaman. They will not even allow aircraft to fly over it. It is that sacred to them. And so you will go and you will gather there. That is the creation choir. And it is celebrating not only that which began on this planet, but that is where you are going to put down new energies. And when 2015 arrives, you will know what those energies are and what you need to do in that place to complement this node and open that capsule. The Australians say, that they have evidence, carbon dated, of civilization as you know it, up to 60,000 years old at Uluru. And so you will go there and feel the ancients, tap into the history and the template that exists there.
that the Pleiadians brought and that the indigenous call the Seven Sisters creative source. A very special one indeed. There is another one in 2015 that you have planned, and it's not in a node. It is in Israel. It's not even close to a node. And you might say, what are you doing there with the choir? What might you do there? I hope this gives you chills, dear ones. And I'll tell you what you're doing there, because Israel... In all the prophecies in the last 2,000 years has been called the ignite point of the end of the earth. Israel was going to be the trouble spot that would trigger World War III. The alliances that would be political on the planet that would bring you a nuclear war. All because of what took place in Israel. All of the problems of the Israelis and the Israelites of all through history culminate there in a troubled area. What might you do there, my dear ones? (laughs) In 2015, you are going to disengage the trouble. You can call this the forgiveness choir if you want to, but they will argue about who is forgiving whom. (laughs) It would be better to call it the healing choir. Healing of ancient enemies, the beginning of sacred land being more sacred than ever before. Where the masters who walk there figuratively can look at one another, hug one another, shake hands and say it's the beginning of a new Israel. It's going to be the new Jerusalem and that is what you're going to do there. It's the city on the hill. It is the one seen by the prophets all along that would glisten with healing, with forgiveness, with new humanity. This is the opportunity you have. It's not an ode. It doesn't need to be to heal it. Many of you will wish to be part of that. Those of you who cannot will know when it's going to occur. And perhaps there will be a way for this one, Yai, to include through the Internet those who wish to join. And you have time for that. This is what we see as the energies of these next three. Beyond that, in 2016, it would be the completion, yet to be known, yet to be planned. But I've just given you the names. (laughs) And so it is at this point in time that you see that what you're doing here is a series. And not one of them is complete by itself. You must have them as a series. A human being does not have to be at all of them. That would be linear. (laughs) Those who are attracted and can come go to each one will be the right ones. Just like those who are the right ones here. Plan on it. Participate in it. Be part of it. You've earned it.
you reach the end of not just a ceremony, but a time of co-creation and the birthing of a new energy on the crystalline grid. And in review, I say yet again, that the crystalline grid of the planet is the action grid. It is the rememberer of human action and that which postures the energy of the newborns. Well, when the newborn humans come into the planet, the first thing they will see besides their parents and their environment is they will relate their Akash to the current energy of Earth. And that is postured by the crystalline grid. And therefore, if you change the grid, you change humanity's newborn potential. Pulling in the history from another place that is pure. And in review, when we told you that the whales had the pure templates of the planet, they are stored there so they we will never ever be destroyed not just the templates of the planet but also of the pure human being the one that Yah-E says will let you live forever indeed there is a template for that it's biological it's esoteric it's divine the inventions of the planet, the quantumness to come, the templates of invention are all there. You cannot separate one template from another. A Gaia template is a DNA template. And therefore the answer to the question that Yah-E has just posed is there is no difference. Dear one, today from what you do with you think the crystalline grid you're doing to yourself. And therefore you are clearing that which is recalibrating within your own DNA and you will be different because of it. You are creating compassion to the crystalline grid at the same time you are rewriting it in yourself. You cannot separate these things. In a linear way, the human being wishes to compartmentalize one and then another. And in singing this tone or that tone, they wish to know what is activated here, how is this working. It does not appear to us that way. It is grander than you think. When you put something on the stove that you worked on very hard and all the ingredients are there, you heat it up together. You don't put a pot on the stove and just a portion of the ingredients heat up. All of it heats up. And this is the quantum soup of what you do with the choir. You turn the key in the lock for yourself in December 21, 2012. And this day, you open the time capsules inside your DNA allowing you greater wisdom in this place healing healing 
things that you've asked for, dear choir members. I said to you first, if you've come to have a good time, you shouldn't be here. You came to work and you have, and the result will be some of you receive what you came for. And the rest will have the seeds planted for grander things, much grander. It is personal, it is planetary. The time capsules open on the planet in the nodes and the nulls and inside humanity, especially the ones who are participating. Humans have free choice. But one of the grand things is that as you open a time capsule and enable it, humanity, which is not esoteric, which would never be here, which would not understand any of these things, will be affected. It is permission for them to find things easier, to see the compassionate ways to put things together instead of tearing them apart. Church leaders, politicians, all affected with the time capsules that begin to open. So don't linearize what you've done here as something you did for a node and a null today. That's not the way it works. Instead, you are heating the pot of the perfect templates of earth and humanity. It's all on the stove together. And by a series of events, you are lighting the fires. When Yahi began, his quantum invention led him to Africa. It's interesting. And now I give you some things you should know yet again about the future, which may seem mysterious. Brian is not a prophet. I am here to show you an overview which is already taking place that individually a human being cannot see. When I arrived 23 years ago and I told you there would be no Armageddon, it's because we saw what was in progress. Not because we had the prophecy of God. We saw what humanity was doing. And that's why we came. We saw the potential of the end of the prophecies of war. And that's why we came. We saw the potential of Yahi and this day. And that's why we came. You sit in prophecy today, fulfilled, and you're part of it. Yahi was led to Africa. It is interesting, is it not, how many of those in this room are working at some level with Africa? And you didn't think I knew that, did you? I do. He's still working in Africa. Yahi's work takes him into many places, but it's about Africa. It's about healing the continent, perhaps even feeding it with quantum invention. Africa. 2012, December 21. 
You were in a node in Lemuria. And at that time, we did not reveal it, but we did later on, that the matching null was in Chad, Africa. <laughs> and so you paired up, did you not, with the Lemurian node and a null in Africa. That was the first of the pairing that we have revealed. The second pairing we revealed in Lake Titicaca was the natural one that you would expect with the node of the lake in Bolivia and the Tibetan mountain is the node. Will it shock and surprise you that the second choir links this Mayan Peninsula node with the knoll in Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa. <laughs> Africa, what is happening there? Why is Yai involved? Why is the choir doing those nodes and nulls first? And the answer is, dear human being, what we have told you before, even that of the Akash, of the man who is talking, knows that his next stop is in Africa. And he will have different colored skin, and he will be part of a political structure, and he will help Yai when he gets there. It's about Africa. And the reason is because it is an untouched continent. And when it is healed, and when it is fed, and when it begins to be its own entity, it will have nothing to undo. It will have no cultures to rewrite. It will start over. And it may very well be the biggest, highest consciousness, most elegant culture to ever exist on the planet. And you're planting seeds for it right now. It's coming. There are so many things you cannot imagine on this planet which are good news, which we see. And yes, it's a long way away. But if we had told your grandfathers there would be no war, would they have believed you at this point in time? If you had told your grandfathers and grandmothers that today's political structure would be so different on the planet, that former countries of war had come together and they have a union together where there are no walls anymore with the same currency. Would they have believed it? If we told you today that there are continents right now lining up to do the same thing, would you believe it? It is all part of what you're doing. The time capsules are you. And inside you is Pleiadian DNA. And inside you is a template of their history. And that is going to start to be revealed. Making you more compassionate. And isn't that why you came? Isn't that why you came? And so it is. seeds for it right now.
Greetings, Mother. In the light of the most radiant one, in the office of the Christ, and only in the office of the Christ, we invoke the loving energy of Saint Germain and the violet pain. We ask at this time to take in Cryon's message and let it all sink in. We actually know that this speech was given before 2015. So I am thinking, and I'm sure this is the case, all those seeds were indeed planted. And so the school of awakening is, has commenced. So we will grow those seeds into bloom. And we will do it for you, Mother. Pass the talking stick to you. Greeting, children of Ra. Indeed, we are in a most auspicious moment where everything is unfolding as it should. We can say with great certainty this time we're in Lord Cryad knew what was happening. We're in this moment. Everything is unfolding right on time. Even though we have no timeline, it is about this now moment. As all the messages are saying, stay in the high energies. Don't get caught in the dramas our wayward children on their way out and what's unfolding is this whole story hmm Pieces of it coming together quite rapidly. All of it 
in this moment. What the commander here bringing up Mother Zuriacus, Mother Africa. Tigris and Euphrates River, Sumeria, our wayward children. It's all coming full circle. Mm. All the stories. And send more love as more gets exposed and indeed it will <laughs> good mother this let's January 6th story let's keep it calm though right mother just the tip of an iceberg absolutely mm. 13,000 years it is at an end. Have compassion, forgiveness for hmm, souls that forgot about themselves and the nothingness. Hmm. Right now, everything is moving very rapidly to conclusion. As Old. the stories have been said we have already won stay in that high place you know the hour is late um, we better Keep it short and sweet. What Patty, what Commander Cryon, all messages coming forth here. It is about all of the children have said we're going to show up and do this now as Patty brought up Generation Z the Millennials the Rainbow Crystal children all here hmm stay in the high heart it's the only place we could say there's sanity. 
at the moment. It is quite amazing to behold all that is taking place. Replicators are in the moment. Think about it. It's just important that we replicate what we require, Mother. Yes. <laughs> Got the biggest replicator right here in your consciousness which is called instant precipitation manifestation mm-hmm. as we're being taught how to use the force to bring in the wisdom here right now and I was going to say mother we got to let go of any kind of judgment no judgment hmm. We're just seeing the tip of the iceberg, like you said. Yeesh. Yeah, we are travelers in this space-time story. Yes. From your future, which is our past, and it's all coming together now. we can have compassion and forgiveness for what has transpired. Mm-hmm. We make it through with all the colors of the rainbow mm-hmm. and then some we better be on our way. Thank you, Mother. We'll come earlier next time. Oh, well, everything's perfect. Everything's perfect. Greetings in the light of of the most radiant one. Dosh, dosh, dosh. Adonai, Sabayo. Dosh, dosh, dosh. Adonai, Sabayo. Kadosh, 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 Adonai, Sahayah, Ilyahu, 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 Yodhe, Odhe, Yavah, Adonai, Vasu, Varadas, Namaste, Mother. Hi, Rama. Oh. <laughs> Where did you go? Um. Oh, just experiencing the energies of. Hmm. 
being with Lady Master Athena. Mm, your mother. Yes. Working on the, the body here. It's going through it. <laughs> Tremendous change. Yes. Yes, we're both very, very sore, almost painful in certain places, and I don't assume anything. I think it's a, a, a huge adjustment, don't you? Mm, yes. Yeah. So it's the time now, so let's do Amy. And it's important to listen to this, too, because... We integrate it and we transmute the energies as we integrate. So let's get started with that right now. Is that it? Yes. Here we go. Turn up the sound. Now. Let me be clear. This bill would be the most significant legislation in history to tackle the climate crisis and improve our energy security right away. President Biden's handling a Senate bill to address the climate emergency. The deal emerged after Senator Joe Manchin reversed himself and said he will support the legislation around a climate emergency. We'll speak to a professor who advised Senate Democrats, then we'll look at how a synagogue president turned congressman is being targeted by an APAC super PAC ahead of next week's Democratic primary in Michigan. We'll talk to Congress member Andy Levin. It's not acceptable as a moral Jewish person to support people who are undermining our democracy. And so it's not about getting endorsed by APAC. It's about taking hundreds of thousands of dollars from them and then also taking money from other corporate PACs that also are supporting insurrectionist Republicans. And we'll look at two threats facing the nation's imprisoned population this summer, intensifying heat waves and monkeypox. Now that the first case of monkeypox has been detected in an American jail, we're faced with a real possibility that this entire outbreak in the United States may be transformed into something that is much greater and more deadly than need be. We'll speak with the former chief medical officer for New York City's Correctional Health Services and with the first formerly incarcerated reporter at the Marshall Project. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden's urging the Senate to swiftly pass the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. After West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin's surprise announcement this week that he would support a budget reconciliation package to combat the climate crisis while lowering health care costs. The legislation represents just a fraction of the more than $3 trillion sought by progressive Democrats in 2020. But Biden said Thursday the deal would still be the most important climate legislation ever passed by Congress. This bill is far from perfect. It's a compromise. But it is as often how progress is made, by compromises. This bill would be the most significant legislation in history to tackle the climate crisis 
and improve our energy security right away. The package includes nearly $370 billion in new spending on climate and energy over the next 10 years, but environmentalists warn it contains poison pills for the climate, like a requirement that the Interior Department open up millions of acres of public lands to new oil and gas development as a prerequisite to installing any new solar or wind energy. The Center for Biological Diversity said in a statement, quote, the new leasing required in this bill will fan the flames of the climate disasters torching our country, and it's a in the face to the communities fighting to protect themselves from filthy fossil fuels. We'll have more on the emerging legislation later in the broadcast. In eastern Kentucky, at least eight people are dead after torrential rains brought flooding and mudslides to the region, washing out bridges and destroying hundreds of homes and businesses. Rescue crews and inflatable boats fanned out to search for survivors, some of whom fled to their rooftops as floodwaters rose around them. On Thursday, up to seven inches of rain fell on parts of Kentucky, and Governor Andy Bashir said the death toll could continue to rise. In a word, uh, this event is devastating, and I do believe it will end up being one of the most significant, uh, deadly floods that we have had in Kentucky in at least a very long time. Meanwhile, millions of U.S. residents faced heat advisories again this weekend, including the Pacific Northwest, where temperatures rose to triple digits again Thursday. The House of Representatives sent the White House a $280 billion bill to support U.S. semiconductor industry. Once signed by President Biden, the CHIPS Act will provide more than $76 billion in subsidies to corporations that produce semiconductor chips in the United States. All but one House Democrat voted in favor of the bill on Thursday. The vote came after Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders blasted the legislation as corporate welfare for a handful of wealthy, high tech companies. Elsewhere on Capitol Hill, military veterans and their supporters erupted in anger Thursday after Senate Republicans blocked a bill to aid former U.S. service members poisoned by toxic waste. The bill would require the Department of Veterans Affairs to remove the burden of proof from vets who say their health problems are related to the Pentagon's use of toxic burn pits in Iraq and Afghanistan. One on Wednesday, Pennsylvania Republican Senator Pat Toomey, who's set to retire at the end of the year, blocked the bill after it initially received 84 votes in the 100-seat Senate. That prompted an angry response from comedian John Stewart, a leading advocate for veterans. Senate's where accountability goes to die. These people don't care. They're never losing their jobs. They're never losing their health care. Pat Toomey didn't lose his job. He's walking away. God knows what kind of pot of gold he's stepping into. Right. To lobby this government to on more people. I'm used to all of it. But I'm not used to the cruelty. No. In eastern Ukraine, Russia's military says an attack by Ukrainian forces using a U.S.-made advanced missile system has killed 40 Ukrainian prisoners of war and wounded dozens of others. Ukraine denied its forces carried out the attack in separatist-held territory and instead blamed Russia for the strike on a prison housing the POWs. Meanwhile, United Nations officials say they're hopeful that a U.N. and Turkey broker deal to safely export grain from blockaded Ukrainian ports could begin as early as today. 
The White House says President Biden spoke with Chinese leader Xi Jinping by telephone for over two hours Thursday at a time of rising tensions between Washington and Beijing. Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre said the talks were aimed at restoring the U.S.-China relationship. The pair reportedly discussed climate change, human rights, counter-narcotics, and Russia's war in Ukraine. And then on Taiwan, uh, President Biden underscored that the United States policy has not changed and that the United States strongly opposes unilateral efforts to change the status quo or undermine peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. After the call, China's foreign ministry said she warned Biden over U.S. support for Taiwan, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's planned visit to the island in August. She was quoted as saying, quote, those who play with fire will perish by it, unquote. West Virginia's Republican-led state Senate is debating a bill today that would ban nearly all abortions while making abortion care a crime punishable by up to 10 years in prison. West Virginia's uh, House of Delegates approved the bill Wednesday after hearing testimony from 90 members of the public who were allotted 45 seconds each. This is Addison Gardner, the youngest speaker. I'm 12 years old. I attend Buffalo Middle School. I play for varsity volleyball and I run track. My education is very important to me and I plan on doing great things in life. If a man decides that I'm an object and is unspeakable and tragic things to me, am I a child supposed to carry and birth another child? Am I to put my body through the physical trauma of pregnancy? Am I to suffer the mental implications? A child who had no say in what was being done with my body. Some here say they are pro-life. What about my life? Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito has made his first public comment since authoring the majority opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which struck down Roe v. Wade. Alito spoke July 21st at the Notre Dame Religious Liberty Summit in Rome in remarks that were made public Thursday. I had the honor this term of writing, I think, the only Supreme Court decision in the history of that institution that has been lambasted by a whole string of foreign leaders <laughs> who felt perfectly fine commenting on American law. One of these was uh, former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, but he paid the price. In June, Boris Johnson called Alito's majority opinion striking down Roe v. Wade a backward step for women's rights. Alito's other critics include Prince Harry, French President Emmanuel Macron, and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who called the ruling overturning abortion rights horrific. The United States Coast Guard says at least five people drowned and 66 others were rescued off the coast of Puerto Rico on Thursday after they were forced off their boat by human smugglers. Most of the survivors are Haitian. They were handcuffed by Customs and Border Protection officials as they were taken into custody. Their rescue came just days after 17 Haitian migrants died off the coast of the Bahamas when their boat capsized. This week, rival gangs in Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince, continued to wage intense gun battles in the impoverished neighborhood of Cité Soleil, where the U.N. warns the number of killings this year is fast approaching 1,000. 
In Veracruz, Mexico, scores of migrants who were left by human smugglers in an abandoned freight trailer on the side of a highway had to break their way out to avoid suffocation. On Wednesday, people at a nearby gas station discovered the migrants after they bashed holes in the trailer's roof. Medics treated survivors for knee and ankle injuries. We were told there were close to 400 immigrants traveling in the trailer. When they started to feel suffocated, they broke through the roof of the trailer and most of them jumped out. That is why most of the injuries we treated were ankle and knee fractures. The migrants are from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. This comes a month after 53 migrants from Central America and Mexico died in San Antonio, Texas, after they were left in a sweltering, abandoned trailer. In Massachusetts, workers at a Trader Joe's outlet in the town of Hadley have become the first to organize a union at the grocery chain. Workers voted 45 to 31 to join the newly formed Trader Joe's United. Overcoming what organizers said was a relentless union-busting campaign. Trader Joe's workers in at least two other states have also launched union organizing drives. And in Canada, Indigenous protesters confronted Pope Francis Thursday as he prepared to celebrate Mass inside Canada's National Shrine in Quebec City. The protest came as the pontiff continued his tour of Canada to apologize for the Catholic Church's role in Canada's brutal Indian residential school system, which saw an estimated 150,000 Indigenous children taken from their families and placed in distant boarding schools where they often suffered sexual and physical abuse. More than 4,000 children died. On Thursday, two Anishinaabe protesters unfurled a large banner reading, Rescind the Doctrine, just as Pope Francis was starting Mass. Their sign was a reference to the 15th century doctrine of discovery used by the Catholic Church to justify the European colonization of indigenous lands. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show looking at how APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, is spending millions of dollars in primary races to defeat progressive Democrats. In Michigan, where voters go to the polls on Tuesday for a primary election, APAC has spent over $3 million targeting Andy Levin, a two-term member of Congress. Levin is a former president of his synagogue. He comes from one of the most prominent Jewish political families in Michigan. His father, Sander Levin, served in Congress, and his uncle, Carl Levin, was a U.S. senator. Congressmember Andy Levin is a self-described Zionist who supports a two-state solution. But earlier this year, a former president of APAC described Levin as, quote, arguably the most corrosive member of Congress to the U.S.-Israel relationship. Due to redistricting, Levin's opponent in Tuesday's primary is another incumbent, Haley Stevens, who's embraced APAC support. Senator Bernie Sanders is heading to Pontiac, Michigan today for a campaign rally with Levin and Congressmember Rashida Tlaib, who's also been targeted by outside money groups. A new PAC aligned with APAC, run by Bakari Sellers, has vowed to spend over $1 million to defeat Rashida Tlaib, who's the first Palestinian-American woman to serve in Congress. This all comes just weeks after APAC spent nearly $6 million in Maryland to defeat former Democratic Congressmember Donna Edwards in her primary.
Other progressives who lost after being targeted by AIPAC include Nina Turner in Michigan and Jessica Cis in Ohio and Jessica Cisneros in Texas. One prominent critic of AIPAC's actions has been Peter Beinert. He's editor-at-large of Jewish Currents. He recently appeared on Democracy Now! So what this play is really about is trying to create a whole new generation of younger Democrats in Congress who will toe the APAC line on Israel-Palestine, also in many, many cases also take a kind of more pro-corporate position and therefore blunt the, the trend that we were seeing towards the Democratic Party moving in a more progressive direction. We go now to Michigan, where we're joined by Democratic Congress member Andy Levin, who's joining us from his home in Bloomfield Township. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Congressman. In a moment, we're going to talk to you about your arrest, or was it two arrests, around abortion rights as you stood outside the Supreme Court. But first, I want to go to this issue of your primary on Tuesday. How many millions of dollars have been spent by APAC? PAC. And this is new for APAC, although they have the word PAC in APAC, they've actually just recently established a super PAC. Right. They, they recently established a regular PAC and a super PAC, but between the money they bundled and the money in the, the dark money they're spending independently, we I believe it's up over $4.2 million, Amy, uh, just to try to take down a, a progressive Jewish Congress person who, I don't know if you remember, but I think I first appeared on your show when I created and ran Union Summer in 1996. So I'm a little bit unusual as a member of Congress. Yeah, that was the first year of Democracy Now! Um, so wow. of that, that amount of money, so we're talking about a quarter of a century ago, but that amount of money you're talking about around $4 million, how much overall is being spent on your primary race? Well, I think uh, we're being outspent about five to one, and I believe two-thirds of the money being spent on the other side is not money that my opponent has raised in you know, campaign contribution contributions, but as independent expenditures. Well, and also, it's worth pointing out that Emily's List is partnering with, um, with APAC on this, even though I've been endorsed by Cecile Richards, uh, by Heather Booth, by the leading... Yeah, and, and by the leading uh, abortion care provider in our region. Um, but, and, you know, Emily's List is now backed by a former SEIU local union president, and they're attacking the person in the race who helped uh, hundreds of women of color join SEIU for a better life. So it's kind of ironic. Well, I want to turn to your debate in May when your opponent, Congressmember Haley Stevens, defended her endorsement by APAC. Well, allow me to say I've been endorsed by the American Israel Public Affairs Committee alongside Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, Majority Leader Sunny Hoyer, Majority Whip Jim Clyburn, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, several dozen members of the House Progressive Caucus, and, and certainly that endorsement was based on my belief in a strong U.S.-Israel relationship. I've also been so proud to be endorsed by the Jewish Democratic Council of America, as well as several other pro-Israel uh, groups. She didn't answer the question. The question is about giving back money from APAC, giving back money from other PACs that support insurrectionist Republicans. Yo, this is not like some gotcha thing in a political campaign. Our democracy is hanging by a thread. It's not, I'm gonna speak Jewishly here, as you know, it's not uh, halakhically acceptable. It's not acceptable as a, a moral Jewish person 
to support people who are undermining our democracy. And so it's not about getting endorsed by APAC. It's about taking hundreds of thousands of dollars from them and then also taking money from other corporate PACs that also are supporting insurrectionist Republicans. We just did a segment on Donna Edwards' race in Maryland where the issue of Israel and Palestine is hardly raised, uh, even by the APAC super PAC in ads. They raise other issues. Is that the case in your district? Are people aware of this outside money? Absolutely. It's the same, Amy. They are not talking about this. They may do some micro-targeting because maybe about 8% of the electorate of this new district is Jewish, and they may do some micro-targeting at them. But uh, their ads, no, there's a double deception here, really, Amy. One is where the money's coming from. And most of this money is not even coming from Democratic capital D sources. It's coming from Republicans and mostly Republican billionaires like Paul Singer and Bernie Marcus and the guy who founded WhatsApp, uh, who, who all of whom fund right wing causes or union busters or, and so forth. That's the first part of this deception. And the second part is. They don't even talk about why they're giving the money. They talk about other things. So they whatever they think will be effective to make their chosen candidate win the race. So what you have here is a real threat to the Democratic Party being able to choose our own nominees that we send to the general election in November. This could, Amy, this could go to other issues. You could have Big Pharma. You could have Enbridge or ExxonMobil or tobacco companies deciding to flood the field with dark money in Democratic primaries so they get their chosen nominee. It's horrifying. So Senator Bernie Sanders is coming out to campaign for you and for Rashida Tlaib. Both of you are Michigan. She's one of two uh, Palestinian, of the first Palestinian-American women to serve in Congress. Um, is She's facing the same issue in Detroit. Yes, but I'm, I feel really confident that Rashida Tlaib will win. Uh, she's an incumbent against a non-incumbent. 60% of the new 12th district is, is part of her current district. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really glad Bernie's coming. I'm glad he's supporting her, too. But um, I think their efforts there will not, you know, are, they, they, they're not investing in the same level because I think they know they can't succeed. Um, my race is an incumbent on incumbent primary, of course, so it's quite a different matter. That's like here in New York, Carolyn Maloney versus Gerald Nadler, the redistricting yes. of the two incumbents uh, facing each other. Um, I wanted to uh, end on this issue by asking about David Victor, the former president of APAC, uh, saying that um, he, in an email to pro-Israel donors that you are arguably the most corrosive member of Congress to the U.S.-Israel relationship. Can you talk about your stance on Israel and Palestine? You and what Jackie Rosen are the first two synagogue presidents to be Congress members? I don't know if we're the first two, but we're the only two current ones. She she told me that. You know, I'm I'm uh, such a out there Jewish person, <laughs> Amy. I've got mazuzot on all my doors, even the non-public ones, and um, I and you know I love Israel and I I I love Palestine and I want. Israel, I feel like after all the pogroms and the Holocaust and all the history that the Jewish people deserve a self-determination in a homeland and the Palestinian people certainly deserve the same. 
Uh, I may be the clearest Jewish voice in the House of Representatives saying that the only way to achieve a secure homeland for the Jewish people is to fully realize the political and human rights of the Palestinian people. That's principle. It's also practical. And I'm not going to back down from it, no matter how many millions of dollars they they throw at me. And I think we're going to win on Tuesday, Amy, because we've got Bernie's coming. Elizabeth Warren was here on Sunday. Jane Fonda was able to zoom in on Monday. We're uh, out on the doors. uh, Thousands of doors we're doing and thousands and thousands of phone calls. We've got all the energy, 14 national unions, every environmental group that's endorsed in this race. Sunrise is on the doors, uh, progressive Jews, Arab Americans, Muslims. It's a beautiful coalition of all progressive forces saying we're not going to let this dark money determine who wins this race. It's going to be the human rights champion, the democracy champion the workers' rights champion, the champion for environmental justice. Congressmember Levin, you've been arrested, what, twice in the last week in Washington? Explain. Yeah, well, it just happened that way. Yes, well, on Tuesday last week, I was um, arrested with 16 of my sisters from the House of Representatives in front of the Supreme Court to say, we are, we don't care about Sam Alito and this right-wing cabal that's taken over the Supreme Court. We're going to do whatever it takes to protect the autonomy of women and anybody who can have a baby over their own bodies and their own decisions. And then it just happened that the next day, a long planned uh, civil disobedience occurred with Unite Here, Local 23. Uh, and I'm, you know, like the shop steward of the Congress, having devoted my life to the labor movement. So I got arrested with them. Believe it or not, Amy, the Senate cafeteria and dining room workers joined Unite Here, Local 23 almost a year ago. Not only don't they have a first contract, a first contract isn't really in sight. So we just have to fix that and change that. And I'm going to be stand with those workers until they get justice. And finally, on the issue of Michigan and abortion rights, a proposed constitutional amendment would override um, a 90 year old state law that makes abortion a felony, even in the case of rape or incest. Can you explain what this is about? Absolutely. I've been a big backer of it, um, and I'm deeply involved in it. It's called Michigan Reproductive Freedom for All. Uh, it, it, it got the most signatures in the history of ballot initiatives in Michigan, so it, hopefully it'll be on the ballot on November 8th. It would put the right to, uh, to abortion care in our constitution, our state constitution, and therefore um, nothing but a federal banner you know, could, could overcome that. And uh, So I feel really great about it, and we're going to We're going to get it passed here, Amy, and we're going to have the right to reproductive care in our state constitution. And 11 Democrat representing Michigan's ninth district running for re-election this fall. His primary is on Tuesday. Next up, President Biden's hailing a Senate bill to address the climate emergency. Now that Senator Manchin has said he'll support it. We'll speak to a professor who advised the Senate Democrats. Stay with us.
uh, but not getting rid of wholesale programs. There were some full losses, such as the Civilian Climate Corps that the Sunrise Movement championed, but a lot of the provisions that we needed are still in there. So how can we break that down for folks? Well, first, there's a bunch of consumer-facing incentives to reduce energy bills. It turns out that 41% of inflation right now is being driven by fossil fuels. So what this bill would do is make it cheaper to get an electric vehicle, a heat pump, which is a really efficient electric appliance that both heats and cools your home. And for low and moderate income folks, it would even help get um, you know, an induction stove, which is, again, a really important piece of technology to cut carbon pollution and energy bills at the same time. So we know that if folks adopt these technologies that the bill is going to make cheaper, it will actually save them $1,800 a year in their energy bills. That's according to an analysis from Rewiring America. And, you know, that's not surprising because it costs about a dollar a gallon to drive an EV versus about four or five dollars a gallon for a gas power car. So we're talking about really delivering a lot of savings with these clean energy technologies for everyday Americans. And I can get into the other details, but I'll just pause there because it's a really big bill. So I don't want to overwhelm you, Amy. Well, Professor Stokes, um, what about environmentalists warning of the bill containing poison pills like this quote I just read from the Center for Biological Diversity, who said the new leasing required in the bill will fan the flames of the climate disasters torching our country a step a slap in the face of communities fighting to protect themselves from filthy fossil fuels. Yeah, like all bills that potentially become law, it's not perfect, right? And we cannot let perfect be the enemy of the good here. Uh, you know, these lease sales are very problematic. The basic idea is that they require a minimum amount of lease sales every year. Uh, I looked at what the historic level of sales were, both for onshore and offshore, and it's about a quarter um, lower when it comes to offshore lease sales than the historic 10-year average before the pandemic, and um, about half of the onshore lease sales. So, you know, it's still lower than what we've been seeing on average under the Obama administration, the Trump administration, but it's not ideal. We do not want to be doing required lease sales. There are, however, some other changes in the bill that pull us in the other direction, such as royalty rate increases. And, you know, what we're really trying to do here is reduce demand for fossil fuels by helping Americans get access to clean energy technologies that run off of electricity and not off of fossil fuels. And so what the idea will hopefully be is that we're going to reduce our demand for fossil fuels, and that will make leasing onshore and offshore less profitable. But no, this is not the bill that, you know, I would have written personally is going to have some bad ramifications for communities on the front lines of drilling, and that is not good. But we cannot miss the forest for the trees here. We have to be clear-eyed. We're talking about a bill that will reduce carbon pollution 40% below 2005 levels by 2030, which will get us 80% of the way to President Biden's goal and towards what climate scientists say we need to do. So it's not perfect, but you know these provisions, the, the modeling that I've seen um, sort of preliminarily, they're gonna add about 1% out of that 40% in the bad direction. So we can think of it as saying, for example, the good stuff is something like 10 to 20 times bigger than the bad stuff when it comes to carbon pollution. Well, I want to bring in another guest here. On Capitol Hill, six congressional staffers were arrested Monday as they held a nonviolent civil disobedience protest inside the office of Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. 
The staffers were calling on Schumer to reopen negotiations on the bill to combat the climate crisis. We're joined now by one of those staffers who was arrested, Saul Levin, helped to organize a direct action in Schumer's office. Saul, welcome to Democracy Now! Now, you're a Democratic staffer, um, and I wonder if this could have played a role in Manchin reversing this kind of action inside Congress. Explain why you targeted not the Republicans, but... Yes, the Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer. Yeah, well, thanks, Amy. Um, you know, part of this action was kind of an alarm bell that we were ringing from the inside, where we were kind of trying to direct people towards the Senate Majority Leader and, frankly, the President of the United States to say, these are the folks who need to be negotiating, like our lives depend on passing climate policy this year, which they do. And so we've seen, you know, Senator Manchin go back and forth with industry and everything else. And we really thought that what was needed here was a boost for Senator Schumer to keep negotiating, to not get discouraged, to keep going, because we have absolutely no option. And keep in mind, there's a huge age divide here. Um, you know, we hope that this had an impact, but there's hundreds of congressional staffers who are doing different things to try and get this bill back to life because we're going to live through the climate crisis. We already are. Some of us are hoping to have kids, hoping, you know, I'm hoping my goddaughter is going to grow up in a livable world. And we weren't on track for that. Hopefully now we're a little bit more so. Now, Saul, um, we just spoke to your father, um, Andy Levin, um, who is running for re-election on Tuesday in the primary. Uh, he was arrested twice last week. You were arrested once. There are a lot of arrests in your family. But if you can talk about why you decided to go this far and now to identify yourself, because in letters you had to senators, initially you just used your initials. Why now come forward? Yeah, well, people, you know, many of us came forward, and, and Amy, there were 17 staffers who were in the room. Um, only six ended up getting arrested. We came forward because we felt like we didn't have a choice. There are, you know, as mentioned, hundreds of congressional staffers, members of Congress who have been working for 18 months or, you know, a bit more than that to pass climate policy during these precious two years of Democrats in power, and nothing has happened, and we felt like, you know, we couldn't in good faith leave for, you know, go on vacation without passing climate policy. And so the first step was to say, you know, we'll take some risks. We'll do some things that we're not supposed to do. We're not comfortable doing. Um, you know, we're not supposed to be the people on these TV shows. But it's so bad, the notion that we're not going to pass climate policy, that we had to step out briefly and say, wait a second, if we do something weird, maybe this will draw the attention and spark the folks who do have more say, who are in the seat power to do something unusual, too, to get this done. So Saul Levin is a congressional staffer and coordinator of the Congressional Progressive Staff Association Climate Working Group, who helped to organize the Climate Emergency Direct Action in Senator Chuck Schumer's office, got arrested with five others, is also a congressional aide to uh, Congressmember Cory Bush. And I am wondering, Professor Stokes, how important was this action, do you think, and actions like these, um, the level of activism of congressional staff, not to mention Congress members, but the staff who've been putting enormous pressure to get climate action done? 
Yeah, of course, I know Saul Levin, and I really was heartened by the action that they took. You know, so many of us felt that despair when the negotiations fell apart. Uh, I certainly was crying, and several members of the staff and Congress were crying as well. And we weren't doing that for some kind of personal reason, you know, in terms of the work that people had put in. It was because we understood the stakes. The You know, failure is not an option right now. We had 100 million Americans under extreme heat last week, and we're about to see those kinds of record temperatures across the country again today. We have 60 million Americans experience a one experiencing a once in a 1200 year mega drought in the West right now. We're, we're seeing extreme flooding in Kentucky and Missouri. You know, this is just terrible. And we cannot just watch the climate crisis unfold like Saul was talking about and not actually do something about it. So there are so many people working in Congress, the staff that Saul just elevated, who have been working really hard. That includes a number of staffers in uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's office who haven't even taken paternity leave when since they had small children. And, you know, I got to tell you, I came on your show exactly one year ago today and then I was in the hospital and then I had my own children, twins, and I have not gone on leave since then, really, because this climate bill is just too important. We have got to get it over the finish line. So I'm really grateful for all the folks working in Congress to get it over the finish line in the coming weeks. We just have 30 seconds. Um, I know you're in Michigan, Saul, but if you can talk about the climate protesters uh, who got arrested last night outside the congressional baseball game and fundraiser as they tried to block the entrance to the Nationals Park. I mean, this is happening at every level now. Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, we were not coordinated with them, but I think at all levels, people are rising up and saying, you know, we need more climate justice investments immediately on an absolute emergency basis. As Leah mentioned, there's, you know, been heat waves all over the country that are unprecedented, other than the fact that they've happened in recent years as the climate crisis has escalated. Um, but, you know, the consistency between our protests and the protests at the baseball game is that people all over the world are rising up and saying, we're going to live through this and our leaders are not moving fast enough. We're hoping, you know, we're still looking at the details and hoping to move forward with climate policy this year. But this new package is not anywhere close to the level of funding that we need. This is not a Green New Deal or Build Back Better. And so people need to keep pushing and pushing for more whatever ways they can. I want to thank you both for being with us. The signs uh, that were held, Democrats sealed the deal uh, and talking about a climate emergency at Nationals Park. So 11 congressional staffer for Congress member Cory Bush and coordinator of the Congressional Progressive Staff Association Climate Working Group, one of six staffers arrested uh, in a climate emergency direct action in Senator Schumer's office. And Leah Stokes, associate professor of environmental politics at University of California. Santa Barbara, author of Short Circuiting Policy and co-host of the podcast, A Matter of Degrees. Next up, we look at two threats facing the nation's imprisoned population, intensifying heat waves and monkeypox. Stay with us. Back in 30 seconds. Every time you look outside your window, everything is just the same as before. You are turning round and round, you see, it's a sad day for sure. Taste the fruit on me. Make love to all you see. 
is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As tens of millions in the United States live under heat alerts this week, we look at conditions faced by those in prisons and jails. Here in New York, two city council members made an unannounced visit Monday to Rikers Island Prison Complex and called it a hellhole. Tiffany Caban's district includes Rikers. And in a statement, she described, quote, New Yorker after New Yorker languishing in intake for day after day with no air conditioning in the middle of a severe heat wave and generally a persistent wave of what in the outside world would be seen as an emergency, taking a week or two to address inside the facility. In the Pacific Northwest, a heat wave pushed temperatures in some areas above 110 degrees Fahrenheit. This is an immigrant held at the Northwest Detention Center run by the private prison company Geo Group in Tacoma, Washington, speaking to Maru Mora Villalpando of the Immigration Justice Group La Resistencia. Right now it feels very hot, and the guards don't want to switch the hours and go out to the yard. They take us out at 2, noon, 1, during the times when it's extremely hot. There's no shade, and they leave us out there for an hour. And when you go back inside, do the guards give you water? No, not at all. What if you ask them for water? There's a water fountain outside, but the water comes out very hot. If we want to take a shower or freshen up, the water in the bathrooms and the shower comes out boiling hot. This comes as a new report by the Texas Prison Community Advocates and the Hazard Reduction and Recovery Center at Texas A&M University finds 13 states do not have universal air conditioning in state prisons. This includes Texas, where most prisons are not fully air conditioned. One Texas prisoner described the environment of extreme heat and the COVID-19 pandemic as a living hell. For more, we're joined from Austin, Texas, by Carrie Blakinger, investigative reporter based in Texas, covering criminal justice and injustice for the Marshall Project, where she's their first formerly incarcerated reporter. We just interviewed her on her new memoir called Corrections in Inc. And she's been documenting conditions during this latest heat wave. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Carrie. What have you found? Um, one of the things that was different this year is that, first of all, Texas prisons are far more understaffed than they have been in the past. So some of the basic things that would be done to mitigate the heat in past years aren't available necessarily this year. There aren't necessarily enough staff on hand to be letting people out for showers as much or letting them outdoors as much or, you know, doing things like providing ice and things like that. So although heat has been an ongoing issue in Texas, uh, this year it's exacerbated by a staffing crisis that's been, you know, years in the making. So if you can talk about what that means, both when you don't have enough staff and uh, give us examples in different prisons. I mean, we're not talking about someone who can go take a cold shower whenever they want to. We're not talking about someone who can move from what three digit temperatures um, over 100 degree temperature to a cooler place. These are incarcerated people. Right. And, you know, they're stuck in their cells and it's been bad enough that this year I've actually had staff reaching out to me, um, giving me tips. That their tip is simply that they're concerned about the prisoners. Um, there was one who called me the other day and said that, you know, she had a, she had this hot tip for me and um, her tip was it's inhumane. 
Like, that, that was it. She just wanted to say it was inhumane the way that the prisoners are being stuck in these conditions. And I know that when I'm asked about this, a lot of times I'll have people say, oh, well, there's a lot of schools that aren't air-conditioned. Um, and obviously that's significantly different. And I think that when people think about incarcerated people in the context of heat, it's, a lot of people like to just sort of blow that off as as if it's a frill, some extra offering um, to, to give people air conditioning. But um, it is deadly. People, 23 people have been documented to have died in Texas prisons since 1998 due to heat-related illnesses. And that's almost certainly an undercount. You tweeted this week about a facility in Gatesville, Texas, where the water went out for at least two days while the temperature, the air temperature was over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Talk about this. Yeah, sure. Um, a lot of our prisons are aging and the infrastructure is aging and some of them are in cities that don't have great infrastructure to be in. So it's not uncommon for water to be going out in these facilities, but it's alarming when it happens during such a heat wave. And in Gatesville, um, the, the water, the city had a water main problem. And so one of the prisons, um, Hughes unit, ended up with no water for um, about two days. And TDCJ, the, the Texas prison system, brought in water tankers and portable toilets and water. But this happens repeatedly. And every time that happens afterwards, you know, we hear uh, stories from incarcerated people about how they weren't able to actually get access to enough water or they weren't actually being let out uh, to use the toilets. Um, so, you know, this is a solution that's certainly better than nothing, but has still historically been problematic. And you know, the other piece of it when you have a city water outage like that is that there's usually a boil water notice, um, you know, during or after. And the other units in Gatesville, because there are several prisons in Gatesville, all had boil water notices, but no means to boil water. I wanted to bring in our other guest, Dr. Homer Venters, who is a physician, former chief medical officer for New York City's Correctional Health Services. In a moment, we're going to talk about monkeypox, but your response as you travel this country and investigate prisons on this issue of the heat wave. Yeah, I think, first of all, thank you for having me. The thrill to be on with both of you. Um, this is a, a drastically underappreciated problem. Um, and one of the most basic tools, which is to understand who are the heat sensitive people who are in a jail or a prison or detention center is almost never undertaken. So when it gets over 85 degrees in a living space, the risk of death uh, and serious illness from that high heat condition is different, uh, but the medical staff, the medical services in these places know who are the people that are more likely to die or get sick, and they almost never identify people as being heat sensitive and focus on making sure they are okay, get them into air conditioned settings. So this is a problem all over the country as more and more places that historically don't have high heat days do and aren't prepared to take the mitigation efforts on top of the long-standing problems in places that uh, Carrie was just talking about. Well, I want to thank uh, Carrie Blakinger for being with us again. Her um, new book is called Corrections in Ink. She's the first formerly incarcerated uh, reporter at the Marshall Project. As we move from heat waves to the issue of monkeypox, yes, to the spread of monkeypox behind bars. 
On Thursday, New York's health commissioner declared monkeypox an imminent threat to public health amidst rising concern about increasing cases in the state and elsewhere. Monkeypox can be transmitted by close physical contact, and experts say it can also spread inside households and through contact while dancing or cuddling or by sharing contaminated clothes or bedding or even breathing the air. Symptoms include swollen lymph nodes, fever and muscle aches, and a bumpy rash with lesions that can last two to four weeks. Painful, painful lesions. This comes as the first case of monkeypox behind bars was reported in Chicago this week at the Cook County Jail. We're going to continue now with Dr. Homer Venters, a physician and former chief medical officer for New York City's Correctional Health Services. He's just written a new op-ed for The Hill that's headlined, CDC must act to prevent monkeypox explosion in prisons. Um, Dr. Venters, we last spoke to you about the COVID-19 pandemic in the prisons. Now talk about monkeypox. While you formerly were head of uh, health services at New York City's Correctional Health Services, we are now talking to you in Virginia where you're investigating prisons and dealing with monkeypox. Yeah, I should say where I am now, there aren't any cases, but I think that my concern around the country is that uh, there are so many places, uh, especially the intake pens, the court pens, um, solitary confinement where people are doubled or tripled up in cells, where there is a, a mandated forced close contact between humans uh, that involves skin-to-skin contact, that if you looked at the part of the CDC recommendations that deal with raves and parties and social gatherings, uh, if you had one iota of experience or uh, even talked to a single incarcerated person, you would realize that same contact is happening thousands, tens of thousands of times every day in jails and prisons. Uh, I am worried that you know, right now we have about 5,000 cases reported in this country, that that number could dramatically increase and the whole epidemiology of the American outbreak could shift in a direction that involves many more cases uh, among people who have justice involvement. So let's talk about the monkeypox vaccine, T-pox. I mean, the U.S. had the foresight to store millions, right, of these T-pox vaccines, which dealt with, and you can explain all the smallpox, what happened? Why are people lined up? This is outside of prisons uh, trying to get this vaccine and can't get it now, not to mention what's happening in prisons. Well, I think that, you know, even what you could see in New York City, my concern is that we're going to go down the same path of a real <clears throat> lack of equity in who gets access to these vaccines. Uh, inside prisons and jails and detention centers, one of my concerns is that there won't be adequate contact tracing to determine who just in a, in a, in a who in the post exposure scenario should be offered the vaccine. Uh, there will be obviously issues with trying to get access to vaccine for carceral settings that are always at the bottom of the list. But just this one technical tool of contact tracing, uh, I found through about 40 or 50 COVID inspections, Often, uh, jails and prisons just don't do it. They just don't try and figure out who were the close contacts for these cases. Now, monkeypox, we would assume there will be fewer cases even when it gets into a facility, so we probably won't have 70, 80 percent of everybody in a prison getting it. We may have a smaller number of people, but it still requires a will 
to go find out who are the people who are in that court pen, that intake pen, that housing area. And that's where I have a lot of concern about just identifying who could, in a post-exposure scenario, um, be eligible. Now, obviously, there are people who are highly vulnerable that we know about today who should be eligible uh, in a preventive or pre-exposure uh, format. So there's something like 21,000 plus believed to be monkeypox cases in the world. Once again, like COVID, the U.S. has um, what something like a quarter of those cases, uh, 5,000 cases. Um, and then you have the prison population. Um, uh, Latinx and black Americans make up a disproportionate share of the cases of monkeypox in the United States. And then within prisons, the black and Latinx population. Population, uh, is overwhelmingly um, disproportionately represented. So what does that mean inside prisons? Well, this means that the mass incarceration is one of the ways, obviously not the only way, but one of the ways in which uh, we have a system that produces inequity in all levels of health outcomes. And here we're talking about infections. Um, you know, the CDC and state departments of health have been essentially absent from both surveilling the health of people who are behind bars, but also promoting better health care for them, better health outcomes. And a lot of this comes down to a reluctance to measure the risk of incarceration. So Carrie was just talking about it, but incarceration creates health risks to individuals and to communities and families around the places where people are held. And so here it's infections, but you know, the same could be said for sexual abuse. The same could be said for traumatic brain injury where people sustain them behind bars. Um, they go home with new traumatic brain injuries, but you don't see the CDC measuring or intervening in this health problem uh, the way they do with youth sports or with other health problems. So I, I fear we're down the same path. We may get some quick fleeting involvement from the CDC and state DOHs with uh, the most acute response to uh, monkeypox in these settings, but no real intervention to say, you know, these places create health risks and we have to fundamentally change our approach to thinking about health and measuring the health risks of these places. So T-pox, the smallpox vaccine, the one that can deal with monkeypox has a major effect the minute you get it. The problem is getting it. Who are the lobbyists to get it into the prisons, considering there's such an overwhelmingly, um, uh, there's such a shortage of it um, in the United States overall? And then what just take off what are the most important actions the CDC and this country should take to ensure the health of the prison population? Sure. So I, we do have, because in about a year and a half or two years ago, we went through the same set of discussions around the COVID vaccine. We do have advocates, uh, legal aid organizations, some parts of the public health uh, structure in this country that are ready to and are thinking about access to vaccines for incarcerated people. And so there, I think the pump was primed, even though we didn't get great uh, outcomes always, with the need to go to governor's offices, to go to State Department's health and force uh, these questions about access. So I think we're actually in a better spot than we would have been without COVID. I think the CDC today needs to come up with, and I know they're working on it, um, guidelines for detention settings specific to them, but they need to be much more explicit. So 
it, these intake pens where you cram people together, where you're going to have transmission, they need to say explicitly, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't be putting 40 people into a small pen, having them sleep on the floor. They should also be explicit about things they avoided talking about before, like <clears throat> copay should be eliminated. People who have symptoms don't report them either because they have to pay money uh, when they report these symptoms, especially in prisons, or uh, they may go to a punitive setting. They may go to a solitary confinement, essentially. And so the CDC can be much more explicit. To do this, though, their guidelines have to be much more rooted in the actual experience of incarcerated people. So they need to talk to incarcerated people. When they go to a tour, just like a state DOH, they can't walk in and take a manicured tour from jail administrators. They need to sit down and have confidential discussions with people who are living this experience. How many persons in jails in this country? Uh, we have 3,000 jails, about 2,000 prisons, and another 2,000 juvenile detention uh, and immigration centers. So about 7,000 of these boxes. So if you think we have 5,000 cases in the country today, that number can dramatically increase. We have to and leave it there. And I want to thank you, Dr. Homer Venters, for being with us, the former chief medical officer for New York City's Correctional Health. This is Democracy Now!, Democracy Now!, Sorry, everybody. Okay, we're going to jump right into this. Thank you, everybody, for doing some good work on this uh, report. Okay, so this is called New Dead Sea Scroll Revelations. What do the Dead Sea Scrolls tell us about the origins and endings of humanity. For 2,000 years, the Dead Sea Scrolls were hidden and forgotten within caves in Israel until being found in 1947. That was the year I was born. Mm. Now, archaeologists with Operation Scroll work to find additional last fragments of these ancient wisdom texts. Scholar and lecturer Ken Hansen returns to Beyond Belief to discuss the most recent archaeological insights in his study of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Moses Scroll, and other evidence that challenges mainstream biblical canon. So here we go. This is 45 minutes. Mm. I'm just going to squeak right through this one. <laughs> okay. It's coming, everybody. something new to talk about when it comes to the world of biblical scholarship. These constant discoveries are amazing. They were put 
in these caves at different periods of time. They're literally rappelling down the side of cliffs, 250 feet down. This is dangerous. In order to get into some of these ancient caves, the most important biblical document ever discovered. We're thinking about eight to 900 BCE before the wow. common era. If this is not authentic, I will eat it. You could not make this up. It's beyond belief. There is nothing more fascinating to me than ancient history. And Dr. Ken Hansen is back with us, a scholar of Hebrew language and literature and the history of the Jewish people from ancient times through the Holocaust and beyond. Ken, welcome back to Beyond Belief. Good to be back. How have you been? I have been very well and very excited because there's always something new to talk about when it comes to the world of biblical scholarship. These constant discoveries are amazing, aren't they? Absolutely. Just when we think that everything that could possibly be found has already been found, then voila, something else comes up. How do they find these artifacts? Well, we've been undergoing for the last several years now over in Israel an entire excavation known as Operation Scroll. The government of Israel launched Operation They're Scroll combing the country. in 2017, combing the western shore of the Dead Sea because 75 years ago, the first of the famous Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. In fact, they're being now commemorated in the current issue of Life magazine, 75th anniversary of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls back in 1947. Same year as the Roswell crash, by the way. What do you know? Same year. Isn't that interesting? Discovered to begin with by a Bedouin shepherd lad, name was Muhammad Ad-Dib, who was tending his flock of goats, right, and stumbled in a cave upon a, a whole row of earthenware jars that found a bundle of oddly wrapped parchments inside, didn't know what they were, it took them off and ended up selling them to a shopkeeper in Bethlehem. He didn't know what they were either. They turned out to be the most important biblical find at that time, ever, at ever, that time. ever. The Dead Sea Scrolls containing copies, at least fragments of each and every book of the Hebrew scriptures, as well as scores and scores of additional books, at least fragments of scores and scores, perhaps even hundreds of books, texts that were unknown to the world until 1947. Nobody even knew these existed. For example, we have a whole book of Psalms a scroll of Psalms. People think of the biblical book of Psalms. Sure. It's an entire book of Psalms that nobody ever heard of. They look like biblical Psalms. They're in Hebrew, but none of them was known until 1947 when quite by accident, a Bedouin shepherd lad stumbled upon them in a cave. My favorite saying about all this is you couldn't make it up. You could you not can't make, make this up. And what did the scrolls say? Did they echo the Bible or was the Bible the scrolls? Well, the scrolls were copies of the Bible. The Bible has a very long chain of custody, as it were, copies of copies of copies of copies. And we don't know exactly how old the earliest copies of the Bible were. Do we know who wrote it? Well, tradition says that the books of the Pentateuch the Torah, as we call them in Hebrew, were written down by Moses. 
from Moses, the, word, the word of God. But we can't prove that. And I can tell you that the majority of scholars today don't buy it. As a no, scholar, I can talk about this. My own colleagues do not believe, the majority of them, that Moses wrote much of anything that is in the Bible, and many doubt that Moses even existed, which gets into another discovery wow. that we definitely want to talk about because we have some countervening evidence that might just indicate that there was, in fact, a Moses, and we may, in fact, have a text that he really wrote. I thought Moses came down with the Ten Commandments. for crying That's out. the tradition. But how far back can you trace this stuff? Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls date back to the first two centuries before the Common Era, the 100s and BCE, before the Common Era, right. and, and right. into the very beginning of the Common Era. And, and they all date to this period by carbon-14. We're sure they are exactly that old. And it's remarkable because up until the discovery of the scrolls, the oldest copies of the biblical text known to exist in the world were medieval. Aha. The famed Aleppo Codex dates to around 980 of the Common Era. That's Aleppo as far back as we could trace our Bibles. And now we've got texts of the Bible that are almost word for word identical to Bibles we read today in Hebrew that date back about a thousand years older than the previous oldest text. Kenny, do the Dead Sea Scrolls discuss the birth of Jesus before he was even born? Not directly, but they do indicate that there was a great expectation for the coming of the Mashiach, the anointed one. They had an apocalyptic sense that they were living in the end of days, and that is brought all the more into focus by the recent finds just announced by the Israel Antiquities Authority within the last year. Because as I mentioned, there's this Operation Scroll ongoing for the past several years where they're trying to find any additional fragments that the Bedouin might have missed back in 1947. Which is possible, right? And in fact happened. So the Israel government said, look, we need to do this in a scientific, systematic way. We're going to cove every nook and cranny up and down the western shore of the Dead Sea, every cave. There are thousands of caves out there. Bye. And Bye. they use drone technology to fly overhead and try to inspect which areas, which nooks, which crannies might actually house explorable caves. Then they... Uh, managed to uh, attract a group of volunteers, hundreds of volunteers, to actually go in and explore a good 500 caves that possibly may hold additional fragments. So you've wow. got these young Israeli volunteers right before they go into the army. This is a good way to get them used to the rigor of the, the military. Side. And, and in this case, they're literally rappelling down the side of cliffs with ropes, right, uh, 250 feet down the side of a cliff. This is dangerous work in order to get into some of these ancient caves. And when they enter, they're crawling on all fours. It's sweltering. They have to wear masks, of course. You can barely breathe. There's dust everywhere, bat dung, bird dung. This is difficult work. In, in fact, it, it's not been unknown for injuries to take place. One major Israeli archaeologist actually fell and died at another archaeological site a few years ago. So imagine the exploration to get in there. And they found in the end, over these past several years, 
a, a whole number of ancient coins as well as Roman arrowheads because there was warfare going on in those days with the legions of Rome. And most intriguingly, just announced within the last year, a series of about 20 parchment fragments discovered in the distant recesses of one cave in particular. It's called the Cave of Horror. As I say, you could not make this up. You can't make this up. Why the Cave of Horror? Because they also found remnants of 40 human skeletons as well as a basket of skulls. 40 skeletons? 40 skeletons and a basket of skulls. All you need are Nazis with, with shooting at you and you've got the next Indiana Jones uh, film, honestly. It's, it's, it's beyond belief. As as our show That's declared, why we is, call it. is beyond belief. We have a show on Gaia called Ascension Keepers with William Henry, and he talks about the Dead Sea Scrolls from that 1947 discovery. In my opinion, the accounts of the Essenes' interactions with the Celestials are contained in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the texts they left behind. These extraordinary texts affirm there was something truly unusual and mystically special about the Essenes. They are quintessentially spiritual, oriented towards the celestial realm and its otherworldly inhabitants. Their goal was an alliance with the upper world. The scrolls describe cosmic battles, beings, portals, hidden agendas, and new superhumans. And cloaked behind it all is the celestial city, the home and mother church of their angelic teachers and the target of their ascension, and how humans can ascend there. The dark side won a major victory in AD 68 when the Romans decimated the Essenes in an early example of ethnic cleansing or spiritual genocide. With the destruction of the Essenes and the murder of almost a million of these souls, their ascension teachings were lost, stashed in caves near Qumran, but they were not forgotten. Mystical luminaries sought their teachings for ages. Believing in reincarnation, it's possible the Essenes knew that their disappearance at the hands of the Romans was a temporary state of affairs. They would return. The Essenes' cache of scrolls, in fact, was rediscovered by chance in 1947. What was that? The inscription was what language? This is Hebrew, and it's the same Hebrew that we speak today. I lived in Israel, studied there. I speak modern Hebrew, and yet the fact that I know Hebrew, today's Hebrew, made it possible for me to go back, pick up the Dead Sea Scrolls, and, and read them like you'd read a newspaper. And that really stuck in my mind and actually propelled me to do all of my doctoral work and to become a professor in this but now the video mentioned this this revolt against Rome that the Romans put down ferociously in, in 68 of the Common Era, at which point the sect was wiped out. What people don't realize is that there was a second great revolt. That first revolt didn't end the desire of the Israelites to be free. There were no more Essenes. The sect was wiped out. But other Israelites rose up under a messianic leader. You talked about the Messiah. There was almost a messianic mania in those days. There was a messianic leader named Shimon Bar Kokhba. What period are we talking about? We're talking about 132 to 135 of the Common Era. That's when the second great revolt. Yes. 
uh, called the Bar Kokhba revolt broke out. A great rabbi named Akiva, one of the greatest rabbis of all Jewish history, proclaimed him to be the Messiah, mm. and they believed it. Well, the Romans under the Emperor Hadrian put it down even more ferociously than they put down the first revolt. And the very remnants of that revolt hid in caves, the same caves on the western shore of the Dead Sea, including the Cave of Horror. And that's why those skeletal remains are in there, remnants of that second horrific revolt. But they believed that this was the very end of days. So when Operation Scroll found these new fragments and just unveiled them within the last year. That's dramatic. Very dramatic. But what did the fragments read? Of all the texts they might have found, the fragments that were now released read this. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the fury of his wrath? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. Imagine finding that fragment. They're talking about God or Jesus? They're talking about God, the God of Israel, and they're believing, or, or the, yeah. the Messiah, whoever that, that would, would be. Of course, of course, this is after Jesus now. But in their case, right. Bar Kokhba was their messianic leader. And they had a sense that this was the end of days. That's amazing. Truly remarkable. Now, you say they are finding more and more scrolls. First of all, Ken, why do you believe they were put in caves and hidden? To preserve so nobody would destroy them? It depends. Is that why they hid them? They were put in these caves at different periods of time over centuries. Different caves. And Yes. In the case of the Essenes, I am convinced that this was their actual library, that they put them in these caves for safekeeping. But in the case of these new fragments from the Bar Kokhba revolt, this was later in history, uh, a good century or more later. And these were people hiding from the Romans and they took their favorite passages with them, their favorite scrolls with them for safekeeping, of course. And interestingly enough, in that same cave, the cave of horror in the distant recesses, they found the remains of a little girl, 6,000 years old, that no one had discovered before, in a flat burial place under two flat stones, wrapped carefully in a blanket, tucked under her with care and love. A little girl. What do you think the significance of that was? It shows us that people had been inhabiting these caves for Living thousands, in. yes, thousands and thousands of years. You know, the oldest city on the face of the earth, Jericho, yeah, goes back, oh, 10,000, 11,000 years. The walls came tumbling down. Exactly, exactly. And here we have, not far from there in a cave, the remains of a little girl. And in the same cave, even further back, we have the remains of the world's oldest basket. You do your own videos, don't you? I do. And uh, let's take a look at one of them regarding the Dead Sea Scrolls and the book of Habakkuk. Exactly. All right. Habakkuk is a thin book in the Hebrew Bible, which speaks of the impending doom of the ancient Israelite kingdom as it was about to be gobbled up by the powerful Babylonian Empire. 
The prophet bemoans the sins of the people which have brought about this catastrophe. But he concludes that whatever is to be the national fate of Israel, the thing to do is to be faithful on a personal level. He makes the classic statement, the doom that the prophet sees is imminent and involves actual historical events, the impending destruction of the nation by a foreign power. This is where good detective work is required, because the Dead Sea Habakkuk commentary, by contrast, is more an apocalyptic work regarding the end of days than a straightforward explanation of what the biblical book is all about. In fact, the word apocalypse, a term akin to eschatology, comes from a Greek root meaning that which is revealed and well describes what the Dead Sea Scrolls are all about. Yeah, if I didn't know better, Ken, I'd say those were your costumes. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I like to do character impersonations for my students. I created an entire series of well, courses, classes for the University of Central Florida, where I'm professor. So there you saw my impersonation of the Detective Hercule Poirot, as well as the ancient prophet. But this is like detective work. And we have the most Absolutely. incredible detective saga now revolving around yet another find that has been reevaluated also within the last year. And we may call it the Moses scroll. Let's take a look at this. I want you to tell us what this is. We're looking at a facsimile that I have created of an artifact discovered, again, by the Bedouin in a cave east of the Dead Sea. Now, this is Transjordan. And when was that discovered? It was discovered in the late 1860s okay. by the Bedouin, wrapped in linen. This is long before the Dead Sea Scrolls were ever found, sure. but wrapped in the same kind of linen cloth. And within, we have a series of parchment fragments. There were 16 altogether. And let me hold this for you while you show us this. And I've made a facsimile here of, of one of them. This is a text in Paleo-Hebrew. This is not the Hebrew. Now, the original today. one would be how old? The original one, we don't know. But based on the how language itself, years old? we're thinking about eight to 900 BCE, before the wow. Common Era. And the Bedouin didn't know what they had discovered. They sold it for a pittance to a shopkeeper in Jerusalem named Moses Shapira. And the writing is Hebrew? The writing is Paleo-Hebrew, exactly. You can and, read that? Yes. And we're looking over here in this column at the most important passage in all of the Hebrew scriptures from the sixth chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. It says in Hebrew, Shema Yisrael, Elohim Eloheinu. Elohim Echad. Hear, O Israel, God, our God, God is one. That's what this text says. Now, Moses Shapiro, who bought this from the Bedouin, he looked at this and he said, this is an abbreviated version of the book of Deuteronomy, and a shortened version. And he became convinced that this may have been Moses' own copy. 
Wow. Now, as I mentioned, most scholars today, including my colleagues, doubt that Moses ever wrote anything. Most doubt that Why Moses even existed. Why are they doubting all this all of a sudden? Because when we look at the traditional book of Deuteronomy, I have a copy of one fragment of it here. This is only about 300 years old. This is okay. a relatively recent copy of Deuteronomy, just three centuries old. Contains the first of the Ten the Bible Commandments. Bible has a book of Deuteronomy. It's yes, this, this is right? this is the traditional book of Deuteronomy. Right. It's much longer than the fragments that were shown to Who Shapiro. Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy is ascribed to Moses himself, but it has all manner of laws in it that discuss what you will do, you Israelites, when you settle in the land of Canaan. For example, it has the famous law, don't muzzle an ox as it treads out the grain. And wait a second, where were the Israelites wandering in the desert for 40 years? What ox? What grain? Right. Moses couldn't have written anything like that. And on chapters and chapters of laws for a settled agrarian society that made no sense for people wandering in the desert. So my colleague friends, my scholars, scholarly friends, yeah, this could not have been written by Moses. This was all just made up centuries later and ascribed to Moses. Well, guess what? None of those problematical passages are in the Moses scroll. If you could fabricate or imagine a document that the real Moses actually wrote, this would be it. In fact, the, the very divine name, YHWH, a lot of people are familiar with YHWH, yeah. it's pronounced Yah, and we don't even say the rest of it in Judaism, it's too holy. That name doesn't appear in the Moses scroll. Because the idea is that the term Elohim was used at that very early date and the YHWH not introduced till later. Well, the story gets more fascinating because Shapira was blown away by this. He showed it to some scholarly friends. He went to Europe. He went to Leipzig. He went to Berlin. One scholar in Berlin said, if this is not authentic, I will eat it. He was that convinced. Then Shapira took these 16 fragments to London to the British Museum, where they were put on display amidst great fanfare, huge throngs, crowds, oh God, newspapers. Yeah. The Prime Minister of Britain in those days, William Gladstone, came and inspected them himself. And the museum was prepared to offer Moses Shapira a sum of one million pounds sterling for what would be the most important biblical document ever See, I'm convinced, Ken, that some billionaires have documents hidden away somewhere in their house. Well, I wouldn't be surprised, and it actually relates to this, because what happened almost immediately is that the scholarly community started doubting it, because they hadn't yet discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. In fact, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were first discovered, the great scholar Solomon Zeitlin said, forgery, fraud, Dead Sea Scrolls. These don't, were, don't exist, right? Well, they, these were just forgeries that you're showing to us. These are not ancient. It took carbon-14 to prove that they're, that in they fact, 2,000 years old because nothing that old could survive. And the jars they put them in were clay. Clay were jars yeah. that, that preserved them. Now, in this case, we didn't have carbon-14 in the 19th century. No, of course not. This was 1883 already by the time they ended up in Britain. What was the and material the they wrote this on? Uh, uh, this is leather. A, a, a leathery type of material covered with a, an, a, an asphalt, yes, with an asphaltic type of resin folded like this, so that only text touched text. What did they use for the ink? Traditionally, they, they use gall nut, 
which is where a wasp stings a tree and it produces a, a little bump in the tree and that's ground up and combined with carbon powder. That's, that's how traditional Torahs are inscribed even today. But we don't have the scrolls to examine anymore. Why? Because the scholars began to denounce these. They said, they said this has to be a fake. It has to be a forgery, a fraud. Nothing that old could survive. We didn't have carbon-14. And, and you, of course, think that's ridiculous, right? Well, it does. It did survive. Well, what happened was poor Moses Shapira was disgraced. The British Museum took them down from display. Shapira was ruined. His reputation was destroyed. His thought family, he concocted this? Yes, he was accused of forging them himself. He ended up fleeing to Holland, where he tried to find some other scholars on his side. He couldn't. And in the end, the poor man shot himself. Oh, my God. He committed suicide. The pressure was that bad. It was that bad. His family was ruined in bankruptcy, his shop in Jerusalem. They had to sell everything. And what about these 16 parchment fragments? Well, and where are they? The British Museum put them up for auction in London, and they were sold for a sum of 10 pounds sterling. Can you imagine? A bookseller, just a bookseller bought them. His name was Quartich. And he sold them to another gentleman who basically wrote an article about them, also believed they were frauds, and subsequently they vanished. Like I just said, somebody has them they in their vanished. house. And, and no, no one has seen a trace of them since. Talk about a detective story. Now, what we have that has survived are some old photos that are illegible back in the 1800s. We also have detailed transcriptions where back then they came along and made a transcription in ink of every letter on all of these scrolls. Ken, let's take a look at biblical scholar Michael Heiser, whom I interviewed, talking about similar things that you've just brought up. Adam, Noah, Moses, Joshua. Not all those figures are called prophets, but they all have one thing in common, and that is a divine encounter. A so, connection. A connection. So, so God comes to them in some sort of memorable, and I think if God came to me, it would be easy to remember this, that day in my life. But it's a memorable, memorable event, and they get commissioned. Mm-hmm. God comes to them and says, I picked you for this task. And Dang. Yeah. So, so that's why they do it, because, again, they're – hey, I, I don't want to disobey this encounter message. You, you even get arguments, though. Moses actually argues with God about why he shouldn't pick him. Well, I can't speak well. I can't do this. I can't. He do didn't that. want to be picked. He didn't, right. He didn't want to go back to Egypt. But, you know, God more or less assures him that at the end of the day, you're going to be OK. I'm going to be with you. Right. And he gives him, again, signs to show Pharaoh that are that are, you know, miraculous. And so Moses quits fighting and goes back. But it's really about the divine encounter. There are two parts of the Bible that fascinate me, Kim. Genesis and the book of Revelation. Who wrote the book of Revelation? Was that written by John? Traditionally, it was written by the apostle John, although I have my own ideas about that. I think it was a John, but personally, I think we may be talking about a rather mysterious 13th disciple. Oh, really? In the shadows, the so-called beloved disciple, who also happens to have been an Israelite 
priest. Now, was the book of Revelation discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls as well? No, but we do have a very apocalyptic document referenced in our earlier video that talks about war at the end of the age. It's called the War Scroll. It really? describes a series of, of seven end-time apocalyptic battles between the sons of light, so-called, and the sons of darkness. How many of those seven battles have we had to date? Well, they felt back in those days that they were going through them at the time. Every, every, every society thought they were in end times. Yeah. And so what I like to look at are cycles, apocalyptic, as it were, cycles. And sure enough, as you look down through history, there are apocalypses that occur from time to time. Of course. I teach the history of the Holocaust. We may be in one now. And we may be in one now. And as we mentioned earlier, those people in the Bar Kokhba revolt hiding in that cave of horror felt that certainly that they were in one. And in the days of Jeremiah the prophet, the Babylonians came in right. and destroyed the great temple of Jerusalem it's in those beautiful. days. And that's a, that's a replica of, of, of course, a replica time. of the temple how big of was, How big Jerusalem. was that event in terms of our scale? Uh, it was at least 90 feet high, covered, covered over in gold and inside. It was all cedar wood, but it was completely destroyed, burned to the ground by the Babylonians. Now, we have a non-biblical text, did not make it into our Bibles, called the book of Second Maccabees. Uh-huh. And in that the book, Maccabees. we're told that the prophet Jeremiah brought the Ark of the Covenant. He took the Ark of the Covenant out of that temple, along with the altar of incense and the so-called tent. We're not told what the tent is, but I'm convinced it was the contents of the Holy of Holies. Uh-huh. Now, we're also told in the book of Deuteronomy that Moses commanded that a copy of his book be placed in the Holy of Holies next to the Ark of the Covenant for all time. When did Moses apparently live? That's also in dispute. If he lived, most scholars think in the 1200s BCE. I put him in the 1400s BC. That's another story because I'm a little bit more conservative. I actually follow the biblical timeline on it two centuries Why earlier. Why is there some doubt now of his existence? It's believed that Moses could not have written all the details in Genesis through Deuteronomy traditionally ascribed to him. There was just too much that referred to even the city of Jerusalem. There are references to Jerusalem that Moses wouldn't have written. But he would have written this Moses scroll. None of that problematical stuff is there. And we're told in 2 Maccabees that Jeremiah brought all this stuff, including the Ark of the Covenant, out into the desert and hid it away in a cave. Uh huh. And where was the Moses scroll discovered in the 1860s by Bedouin in a cave? Voila, touche. You could not make this up. It's beyond belief. It is beyond belief. It's truly remarkable. Who was Moses, in your opinion? I love Moses. I think that there. Charles and Heston played him well. (laughs) He played him well, but. Even though scholars doubt his existence, I say that if there were no Moses, we would have to invent one because great movements, great peoples don't come about with no leader. 
even the United States, of course, had it not been for George Washington, there would be no United States for sure as a historian. We wouldn't have made it. It takes strong leaders to build a movement that turns into a people. Moses had to have been, had to have existed. And by the way, I think he was probably one of the greatest military commanders of all time. Is that what he was originally? You can look at him that way. You certainly can. This escape out of Egypt was remarkable. Did he have scribes working for him? Doesn't say so. And some scholars have doubted that writing even existed in those days. But more recently, we now have examples of proto-Semitic writing on stone that have been unearthed that do date to be that old. So I don't discount at all the possibility that Moses not only lived, but that he wrote and that his writings, according to the Bible, were written down, were communicated. We're told that his successor, Joshua, came out to the great Mount Ebal in the land of Canaan, where the curses of the law had been read. And and he subsequently built an altar there and he wrote upon them the law of Moses, the law of Moses. I think we're again looking at the Moses scroll. Why is there so much controversy surrounding this camp? Well, we have a lot of minimalist scholars who basically believe if it's in the Bible, it must not be true. <laughs> and that's very popular really? in, in the halls of scholarship. Uh, absolutely. absolutely. Um, many of them, of course, are. Uh, huh. But they tend to view biblical texts in a very loose manner. And I wouldn't take them exactly word for word, because I think that there is an evolution in these biblical texts. This Moses scroll is, I think, predating our traditional scroll of Deuteronomy. Assuming everything you've said today is real, and I have no doubts about you, but let's assume they are all real. What does that tell us about these ancient artifacts? What does that tell us about Jesus, about God? What does that all mean to us? Well, we have an era of discovery going on and still going on such as we've never had before. We have tools at our disposal that really can help to verify ancient accounts to indicate what we can rely on, what we can't. There were a whole group of quote unquote Dead Sea Scrolls that were passed off to the Museum of the Bible just a year or so ago, and they turned out to be forgeries. But we have the tools now to examine what's real, what isn't, and we can use the best tools of scholarship. And oftentimes what we find is that while it's fashionable to doubt everything, hey, we often find that the more of these tools we use, the more we in fact verify exactly the traditions that were handed down. Why the forgeries? For money? Profit? Absolutely. And the Moses scroll claims to be a forgery. Even today, my scholarly colleagues are calling this a forgery. How do you authenticate it? I ask, if this is not authentic, who on earth would have forged it? The Bedouin? Did they know enough to to forge a text like this? What's the motive? And what's the motive? They sold it for a pittance to Moses Shapira, the shopkeeper. Now, it's claimed that Moses Shapira would have forged this. But wait a second. We have another fine scholar, an American uh, Jewish Israeli, 
who has recently, within the last year, published a major scholarly work on the Moses Scroll. He has actually gone back to Berlin and found in the Berlin archives Moses Shapira's own papers, where he is staring in at Berlin. in Berlin, because after he bought them from the Bedouin, he said, this is incredible. I've got to show them to other scholars. He went to Leipzig, Berlin, and on to London. But while he was in Berlin, he showed them to the scholar who said, if this isn't real, I'll eat it. So he has his papers. His papers were lodged in Berlin. And in those papers, Moses Shapira is straining over this text, trying to figure out what it means deciphering the letters and making mistakes as he goes along. Now, would someone who had forged this document be trying to figure out what they mean and making mistakes to on a document that Probably he had forged not. himself? It's impossible. Probably not. If, if this is not authentic, then who on earth might have forged it? That's the question. And there's no answer to that. My scholarly colleagues have no answer. It's a little bit like those scholars who examine the plays of Shakespeare and with all the minutia start counting the number of times to be appears in Shakespeare and then try to use that to prove that Shakespeare didn't write his own plays. That's exactly what goes on in the halls of scholarship. I call it straining at gnats without getting the big picture. And the big picture is this, if it's real, it's the most astounding, most important biblical discovery in history. Are you concerned about things in the book of Revelation? Do they scare you, Ken? When I look at the world today, a lot of things scare me because, as I say, I can see apocalyptic cycles. Imagine living during the period of the Holocaust. These things happen over and over again. I don't know when the end of days will be, but I can tell you that in the Jewish world, which I'm a part of, there is also discussion of what's called the pangs of the Messiah, Chevlei HaMashiach in Hebrew. That before the messianic age and the world of peace will dawn, before the Messiah comes, and of course, Jews are waiting for the first appearance of the Messiah, Christians the second. But before the end comes, there will be a time of trouble, of pangs, birth pangs, as it were, a, a, a time of war, famine. Even inflation is mentioned among the ancient rabbis. So we look out today at the various threats. I look at the nuclear threats around the world today, especially in the Middle East. Uh, this is terrifying it's stuff. Terrifying. And we need, we need strong leadership because I don't want to see the world go up in flames as that ancient scroll had declared the, the rocks are thrown down by him. The hills melt. It sounds almost like a nuclear conflagration. In your opinion, what was the Garden of Eden? An idyllic state that existed, of course, at the very beginning. We don't know exactly where it was. And of course, scholars dismiss all this as mythological. But there are actual locations in the Middle East where, in fact, there, it was in Iraq, right? Uh, so that, that is one possibility, Iraq, absolutely, Iraq. where you can look at where the rivers came together. And there is a theory, a good scholarly theory, that at the very beginning of human consciousness, there was a belief in a single God. Which contradicts a, a lot of thinking. Monotheism. Monotheism actually may have been the very first concept, which well, is let's very see if you agree with this from Gaia's ancient civilizations about the Garden of Eden. Let's see if that echoes what you're telling us. The search for something more powerful than our own current reality isn't a modern concept. 
but rather an ongoing search for the location of the Garden of Eden, the proverbial beginning. There, there's, there's been a fixation amongst biblical scholars, early archaeologists, that everything in the Middle East began on the Euphrates and the Tigris, down in what is today Lower Iraq. And that this is where the Garden of Eden was. This was where everything emerged, good and bad, in the sort of Genesis tradition. In 1922, English archaeologist C. Leonard Woolley went to southern Iraq to hopefully find the Garden of Eden based on early discoveries of Sumerian cuneiforms. However, what he actually uncovered instead was the exact location of the ancient Sumerian city of Ur. Was he getting close? The early archaeologists were trying to prove the Bible and they were funded by biblical societies. And that's, you know, in other words, they had to come up with the proof and it ignored a lot of legends and traditions which suggested that these cities were elsewhere. Could Woolley have ignored some important information that was revealed several years before? In 1849, almost 75 years earlier, thousands of Sumerian cuneiforms were found northwest of Ur at the ancient cities of Sippar and Nippur. Vers 1849, Henry Layard performed many excavations on the Sippar site and discovered about 20,000 tablets, Sumerian and Akkadian. And amongst all the tablets discovered, about a dozen of them are about the Garden of Eden. Fascinating, Ken. Fascinating. And Sir Leonard Woolley was a real pioneer in all of this archaeological work. He really believed that he had found Abraham's hometown and people would come and visit him. He'd say, this is a house Abraham might have lived in. Well, we're not so sure as scientific methodology has progressed. But nonetheless, these people blazed a trail in archaeology. They took the Bible seriously. They took it literally. Absolutely. And these ancient traditions, even no, no. oral traditions, are not to be dismissed so lightly. It came to be all the rage in the 19th century with the German school of biblical scholarship to dismiss as much of the Bible as possible. But I'm in that small cadre, admittedly, of scholars who think that we need to re-examine these biblical texts and take them as seriously as we can because these traditions are well-founded and they are very ancient indeed. Will they ever find the tomb where Jesus was laid? I think I know. I think really? I know where it is. Where? That's one instance where I believe it's the traditional site. In the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you go into that church today and this entire it's on that ground exactly this entire area that used to be part of a limestone quarry for the ancient uh, city of jerusalem was leveled wow and a church built there by the emperor constantine's mother helena and so consequently the, the topography has all been destroyed yet the, there is a site of the traditional tomb inside the church itself you have to literally crouch, crawl to get into it. But that tomb itself 
was recently repaired, shall we say. There was restoration work done on the inner chamber, and everything seems to match what the record tells us about the cave where Jesus would actually have been laid. It was a first-century burial area. There are other first-century tombs and fresh tombs in the basement of that church. I've been there. So it's an archaeological paradise to dive into all this. Ken, thanks for being on Beyond Belief. Fascinating. It's a pleasure. Folks can go to my website, drkenhansen.com, and my new book, Don't Forget Whose Holy Land, Archaeology Meets Geopolitics in Today's Middle East. Sounds exciting. It is amazing. They continue to find discoveries in caves throughout the Middle East. I wonder what the next discovery will show. I'm George Nori. Thanks for watching Beyond Belief. Okay, we're going to squeeze in a few more minutes here. There we go. to commit oneself, to give oneself up, and that's quite mad. 
so we come to the strange conclusion that in madness lies sanity. Okay, everybody in madness lies. In madness lies sanity. I will contemplate that, and we will see you this afternoon or tomorrow, depending on where you live. Thank you so much. It's been fascinating, and there is so much coming about. Thank days. you. Thank <laughs> you. We say thank you to. Everyone. <laughs> All right. You better say aloha. We'll see you soon. Satnam Namaste.